Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 296th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that spills more blood than a vampire wedding. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, as always, is Travis Allen, at Wizard Bumpin' on Twitter. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Good evening, everyone. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Travis, what is on the agenda this week? Oh, this week I figured we'd talk about four different types of things. Uh, segment one, our MTGO metagame week in review, but... For the first time in quite a while, it's kind of a split here, MTGO and paper. We have two modern premieres, and we have an SCG Invitational, and also some people played Magic up in Toronto, if you can believe that. Segment two, our top paper movers. We have some cards that moved in price this week, uh, a little heavy on the foils, it would seem, as well as some MTGO movers. Segment three, our cards to watch, a handful of cards James and I think will move in price, and uh, the return of the listener pick for the first time in, oh, it feels like it's been a month now. And our topic of the week, uh, Crimson Vow spoilers. We will spoil who Olivia is going to marry uh, and spoil what I think about Cleve. Take your guesses. Uh, let's start out here at the top, the meta- MTGO metagame. Uh, well, just, you, just before we get into that, can I tell you some like some tops and slops for the week on my end? Uh, please. <laughs> so we'll, we'll talk, start with the slops. I noticed today that there were extended art, unnatural growth, available on TCG Player in a reasonable quantity. I think it was 11 or 14 copies or something. Like $2 below the cash buy list for uh, Card Kingdom. So, usually a pretty good signal that you should go ahead and buy something when the card's only been out for a couple months, if that, and Card Kingdom's paying more for it than you can buy it for on TCG. And of course, that brought me to buying some foil copies at about $12, and one of the things that you may note is that I called this card several weeks ago. And the plan there was that it was supposed to get down to $6. It was the first time we experimented with uh, making a conditional call on cast in an effort to avoid making recommendations on great cards that would probably hit their lows further down the road. Thing is, a natural growth has been very resilient to sliding down below $10 in foil extended art. Part of it might have to do with the frequent TCG player sales that have been going on lately. And there's another 15% kickback sale coming up on November 5th. That's three days from now. So just about when people will be hearing this cast for the first time. Um, I don't know that that card is ever going to get under $10 in foil. 
It is a strong card. Uh, unnatural instinct, right? Unnatural growth. Unnatural it's growth. The, it's the one that that doubles the power and toughness of your creatures during combat. Right, right, right. And I, I could picture it in my head. Yeah, with the big werewolf on it terrorizing the town. I I drafted two in my draft deck last week and was like, wow, this is this deck is going to kick some serious ass. And then didn't really realize how much like of a beating this deck was going to be until it got to my opponent's turn and all of the power and toughness and all my creatures doubled. And I was like, wait, what? I was like, oh shit, this is on every opponent, every combat phase. Yeah. I don't so, think I knew that either. Yeah. So in EDH that's on everybody's turn, your creatures are double size. <laughs> Cards pretty good. Yeah. So it looks like this sold about 30 copies on TCG player today of the, just the normal version and probably it's like four or five of those are foils. The foils are showing at five bucks, but that's not, that's just the pack copy, not the extended art. Well, there's yeah. no extended art for this. Is there? Yeah, there is. There is. Oh, it doesn't show up when you do the. Yeah, you have to, you have to type in the name of the card and then yeah. cl- either click in Magic the Gathering on TCG player or uh, click the extended art in brackets version. They, they have to harmonize that uh, data uh, at some point. I was going to say, I wonder how many complaints tcg player has gotten about this from like vendors and people in the know and how many sales they have lost by players not realizing because there's you you go to unnatural growth and you click view all versions and there's other cards so like you are absolutely getting the signal that this is all of them it's from an e-commerce like designer perspective this is a nightmare they they have to like resolve this but as you said they, they may be missing a lot of the data on it because they don't actually know when they miss sales one of the key statistics in e-commerce is when something makes it to a cart. Well, there's two. When somebody makes it to a page but doesn't add it to the cart, and when somebody makes it to the cart but doesn't check out. Those are big deals. You, getting those numbers, the percentage conversion rates as high as possible in both of those scenarios is important. But it's really hard to suss out when somebody searched for something but didn't find the version they were looking for. Or Mm -hmm. never saw the version they would have been interested in because your referral process in terms of you may also like is not particularly strong, which is also true of TCG Player. They have that like horizontal band across the mid page that you have to scroll through and the algorithm that drives it is not particularly wise. So there's a lot of things I would change here uh, were they to give me the chance. Like I could swoop in there and they gave me all powerful status. I could fix five major problems on that platform in about ten minutes, and then let them get to biz- get down to business. <laughs> uh, in any case, it does seem like that extended art foil sold like something like seven foil copies today. And well, did you buy these today? Yeah, so I'm I'm a healthy okay, chunk of you're... that. But, but there's also there's also a funny part there because you're gonna see you should see some uh, foils that I spent thirty four dollars a piece on by mistake. Yep. See yeah. those. Yeah, so that's me. And uh, our helpful pro traders pointed out pretty much right away after I posted my screenshot of the cart, all proud of myself for getting cards under buy list. And they were like, yeah, but what about these $34 copies? I was like, um, not really sure what happened there. It's one of two things. Either I added them to the cart in error via misclick or something, which I find hard to believe given the way that the site is structured, or more likely they were put into my cart last night. And by the time I checked out this morning, the vendor had changed the price. 
but I I never noticed as I was checking out. So I've sent a, I've sent a little like, hey, could you fix this for me to TCG? To which they are going to respond, lol, R O F L, lol, haha, sucker, you bought cards for too much. Like, <laughs> I mean, what's my what's my argument even in that scenario? Um, I bought these, but that was stupid. So I would like a refund for <laughs> in defense of my own stupidity. stupidity. That's they're pretty they're pretty flexible with refunds, right? Like most most vendors, most platforms in person and online are pretty good about giving refunds, even if it's Listen, a dumb I'm, mistake on your part. I'm not putting holding my breath because if this was if this was somebody buying from me and they were just like, oh, I bought those by mistake. Yeah, sure, I have no problem with that generally. Like somebody told me the other night they they misclicked on something on eBay and bought it by mistake, and I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. But if somebody was just like, oh. I bought these are more than I should have spent. <laughs> it's going to depend what mood you catch me in, that's for sure. <laughs> really? I don't know. I feel like if someone asks for a refund, I'm almost guaranteed to give it to them. I don't know under what scenario I wouldn't. It's buyer's remorse, just general buyer's remorse. Like you found something for $2 cheaper elsewhere. Nah, I, I'm not about it. But you're best served to do it because you're trying to protect your ratings. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's cases. really what it is. Is For me, for me, it's going to be, well, it's probably not worth, like, this guy might just be annoyed about it and take the loss and move on, but he also might open a claim with TCG player and be angry about it, and it's just going to be like, uh, whatever, like, it's easier to just give him the refund than it is to possibly deal with whatever stink he's going to cause. I'd like to claim that they didn't notify me of the price change. But I'm not even a hundred percent that a message didn't appear on screen at some point that I ignored. Like it's possible that when I reloaded the cart, there was a price change notice at the top, and I just assumed it was a inventory change notice. You know how that happens? Mm-hmm, like if you mm-hmm. if you put eight copies of something in a cart, and by the time you go to check out, there's only six, they'll notify you. Oh, there's only six. Now, usually with me, it doesn't matter because I'm not buying for decks. I'm buying specs. So if there's slightly yes, less yeah. than I planned, I don't care. I'm going to check out anyway. But I suspect that buried in one of those messages was a price change notification, in which case it really is on me. So the something to be aware of when you're buying on TCG, learn from my mistakes and uh, put them to better use. Now, the that's all well and good, and I'm not too sussed about it, because I managed to get out of that Amano Liliana last week at 4,900 or 4,800 credit or whatever to CK after buying the card from them 18 months ago at 950. So that put me at like 8,700 credit with them. And then I was poking around trying to find some beta to buy. <clears throat> Couldn't really find anything left in stock because a bunch of our members have gone ape shit on some of that stuff with their own buy list uh, exits over the last couple months and cleared out some of the really, the real hot goodies. How dare they? Well, you know things happen and but then i realized that ck partitions their graded cards oh yeah into a relatively hard to find category that you're going to have to go looking for and know about if you're looking for such things and that made my life a lot whole lot easier because they had a cgc graded nine ancestral recall quite a lovely card uh at eight thousand seventy nine ninety nine ninety nine which seems to be somewhere between, I don't know, 500 and 800 of street price on something like that. I don't have an Ancestral, so that just seemed like an absolute no-brainer super win because that's about 2,600 worth of cost being turned into a 
CGC nine graded ancestral. Yeah, I mean the, that Amano Liliana <clears throat> and all of, uh, that whole period certainly worked out well for you and uh, several pro traders who were really on the ball when all that was going down. Well, and I still have the S one sitting in sitting in the safe. So, oh, that's still floating around too, huh? So the question is, what to do about that? Uh, that one doesn't go to CK. CK is paying the most in the world, to my knowledge, on pre-release copies of most of the Planeswalkers. Um, but the S1s aren't recognized anywhere in North America. Now, you might be able to do an S1 deal on the floor if you were dealing with Liz or Douglas or somebody who was in the know. Um, but not going to get it on an online buy list. So in that case, your best bet is to send it off to Japan, where I sus- I believe the buy list was something like 8,000 or so. Let me just see what Haryu is offering today on that bad boy. Well, bad lady, really. Ileana Dreadhold General. Highest price. Looks like they are offering. It's actually come down quite a bit. They must have got. They must have got a couple of these recently because they had this price up. I think it was somewhere near six thousand, but six hundred thousand yen. And as of today, they're only offering three hundred thousand. Mm. So. Now they still they've, wait th- three hundred thousand yen. So that's Isn't... three three grand U.S. or so. Yeah. Yeah, that's still a good chunk of change. Oh, it is. But and I and I got that one. Like that was just lucking out. I ordered that Amano S one from Europe as just an Amano for about eleven hundred when it was popping off, and it was like the talk of the town in our Discord summer of twenty twenty, and it just happened to show up as an S one. But. Harry still has copies listed on their site at 7,000 7, to 8,000 US. So leads me to believe that somebody must have sold one to them recently. Yeah, probably. That's the type of thing that's going to move, I would imagine, pretty slowly. Yeah. So it's uh, wins and losses, but uh, wins and losses. certainly plenty of action in the MTG finance world. Uh, side note, one of the other stories worth telling is that they announced that MH2 is coming back to Magic Online for drafting. I believe for a six-week period. Let me just double-check that. Uh, Oko was going crazy about it in the Discord channel. (laughs) Was that because you have to short everything now? Well, yeah, there's mad shorting going on on things like Ragavan and Urza Saga and whatever. Um, And then... There's going to be also huge opportunities to buy in on key staples again once drafting drives them back down. But yeah, yeah. But there's also looks like it starts. I think it's mid November here. Yeah, it's sorry, November third to January fifth. So almost two full months. And the the weird thing about this, of course, is that Crimson Val comes out in late November. So Crimson Vow on Magic Online has to compete directly with Modern Horizons 2 drafting. Which probably <laughs> means that the Crimson Vow cards are going to generate huge spikes. Because does, there's not going to be enough drafting going on. Does anyone draft standard on Moto? They sure do. Like I'm sure somebody does, but like 
Well, thousands of people do. Otherwise, they wouldn't run it. I'm just, I would just, yeah, I mean, I guess I would just expect that to be happening on arena for the most part. Like, if that's what you were looking for. Like, I get the impression people draft standard on moto because they have to, essentially. But if it was true that nobody was drafting standard sets on Magic Online, the prices would be through the roof. Well, that, and that's what I mean. I feel like that's why people do it because it's like, well, I have to do this because if I don't, I'll never be able to afford these cards in two years because. Well, just won't I mean, be any people doing it. That's solid logic, but I don't actually think the players are using it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's like, I'm committing to drafting on Magic Online because otherwise I won't be able to afford standard decks. Like, that's the kind of thing or, where it's a or present- modern decks. That's what I think about. Oh, that's how I think about it. I, I don't think anybody puts the, the two and two together like that. I think they just, there are people that prefer Magic Online to hmm. Arena. There, there's people they have that their prefer- collection there, so that's where they run with. Well, because they can buy and sell stuff there. Like, I, I've earned thousands of cards on Arena by from drafting, and I can put together a, a reasonably decent historic deck with only a few holes in it right now. But the there's no exit from that. No matter how much time yeah. and energy you put into it, you can never exit. Ooh, so right, there, right, right. there are people that that turns off. Um, and <laughs> and you also can't play modern. You can't play EDH. You can't play Legacy. So drafting into cards where you're going to be able to repurpose them in those formats is pretty reasonable. And then Modern Horizons Two was never on Arena, right? Well, I mean, I know I, I know why people prefer Moto. I mean, that's obvious. I'm just thinking, like, if I if if you, I would expect most people if they were going to play a standard format draft would be inclined to go with arena just because the platform is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm giving them credit here, a better platform for drafting. If it has the set you want, uh, there, there has been some argument about whether the live eight person pods on magic online are better than on arena. Um, I certainly find pods pretty soft on arena. Uh, I get past a lot of good cards a lot. Um, so I don't know. I, I only draft on arena, but that's cause I can chain together like seven, eight, nine, ten 10 drafts and get the cards together. I need to play our pro trader sealed deck events. <laughs> You've but, got your credit, your, uh, priorities in the right place then. That's basically like the whole life cycle of my participation on arena. Like I just draft at the, like early on in a set's release on arena using whatever gems or gold I've built up. And then try to string together like at least a four four three record for as long as I can until I run out of gems slash gold, and then hopefully I have enough cards to fill in the seal deck. For, <laughs> which we're always you know that tournament always ends up inevitably ends up starting four to six weeks after release. So I need just I usually have just about enough time to get shit together. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Modern Horizons 2 on Magic Online is going to make a lot of people a lot of money if they're on the ball, because shorting today uh, has already been uh, profitable, and there are going to be staples that are going to be dirt cheap come midwinter. That you know, then they'll probably put that aside for months, and they're gonna you're gonna have ragavans and sagas and whatever rocket shipping over a course of a two or three month period. Yeah, now's your time to get solitudes, right? Or will be very shortly. Soon enough, yeah. Uh, and then yeah and then crimson vow looks like it'll be underdrafted on magic online uh too much competition i think it'll, it ends up getting one month of naked drafting before uh kamigawa neon destiny comes in because i Jeez. think that happens first or second week of february 
And of course, that's that's good, but that's going to be at the tail end of Crimson yeah. Vow's yeah. lifespan, not the beginning where people are interested and it's exciting. Yeah, yeah. So I mm. suspect that the good Crimson Vow cards, especially the multi-format ones, are going to be rocket ships as well. So lots of lots of opportunity, all being discussed in the Magic Online forum Discord channel uh, for the Pro Traders. And now, with all that being said, let's uh, jump into our MTGO metagame week in review. We've got the modern uh, challenge event. Uh, modern challenge, I think it was October 30th. You and have then, the 30th written on the sheet here. Yeah, and then modern challenge October 31st. That makes sense. Saturday and Sunday. And they both seem to be full of the same decks we've seen before. Uh, you know, Murktide, um, Yorion, a little some Hammer Time with you know your assorted combo decks thrown in here. So one a Mill, a Char Belcher, uh, a little bit of Burn, some Amulet Titan. So nothing at this point, nothing that feels uh, out of the ordinary. I guess one of the key points I have is that this swath of challenge decks from this past weekend is a little lighter on the companions the modern challenge on the saturday was blue red murktide amulet titan blue red murktide none of which run companions blue black mill which runs luris kind of incidentally blue red murktide again grixis death shadow which does run luris that's the one with dress down that we saw months back that uh, has been largely off the menu since then then four color Yorion, which is doing plenty of work, and then black green Yogmoth com mid range combo, which doesn't use a, uh, a companion either. So that was only three of eight on the Saturday, and then it was half the field on the Sunday, led off by a Hammer Time deck that ran no Luris. They gave up Luris to run so they could run Nettle Cyst. Yet another modern horizons two card top 18 <laughs> i don't know what the tally's at now but it's in the 20s that's uh that's a lot of cards that's a lot of cards i you know it's i actually just messaged i was looking for something last night uh and related to our segment four here uh and stumbled upon an article from sam black in april of 2020 uh so last last year right when uh companions basically had been spoiled and so was that april of last year i don't know it was roughly when companions were spoiled but it was sam black and he april said uh, yeah. it was april 20, okay sam black saying that companions are the worst thing to ever happen to magic <laughs> and so I, I messaged him again i messaged him today to ask him if he still felt that way uh he hasn't responded i'm curious to see if he gets back to me should probably slide into his discord he's pretty active in uh, there the, oh yeah, he does have the Discord, doesn't he? So anyway, they got a Nettle Cyst, they got a Shadow Spear, and a Sword of Fire and Ice. And then out of the board, they have a Sword of War and Peace and a Sword of Sinew and Steel uh, from Modern mm. Horizons One. So I don't see much of that. Nope. All of those swords, in, instead of uh, running a Luris, because Luris can only bring back, only allows you to run permanents that cost two or less. Um, yeah. And that was the deck that won. So, you know, Hammer Time has seen multiple evolutions and iterations lately. You got the Dark Hammer Times with Dark Confidant. That seemed to be off the menu this week. Uh, and now you've got this new uh, kind of pure, you know, white as snow version. And then Char Belcher was in second, as you mentioned. Four Color Yorion on the Sunday in third. Another more normal Hammer Time in fourth. Burn in fifth. Blue Red Murktide in sixth. Shardless Footfalls in seventh. And Amulet Titan in eighth. That's a very healthy looking top eight, really. 
four companions, three Lurus. I mean, two two Lur- three companions. Sorry, not four. I said four. Uh, it's just two Lurus and one Yorion. So some total, it was five to three, no companion versus companion in both challenges, uh, which I think is reasonable. Like if, if things were always that way, I don't think companions are ever going to get banned. Uh, if it swings the other way and you're seeing them five, six, seven of the decks per week, then I think you got bigger problems. I still am not sure. Uh, I 100% agree, but we don't have to retread the ground again yeah Yeah. redo that conversation all right so there was also some of the first major paper events are starting to filter into the mix and of course we're heading on i think three weeks now to the cfb event in vegas that's going to have a twenty-five thousand dollar modern tournament um so that will obviously be pretty interesting to see what happens there but there was also an seg invitational now i think you have to take the top eight listed decks with a grain of salt because they played multi-format right so I'm not sure that these decks are the, actually the ones with the best record so much as the ones that were wielded by the people that top aided. But suffice to say, if you top aided, you probably had uh, a pretty good record. This was, uh, of the modern component, it was Corey Baumeister. I hope I'm saying his last name correctly. That's uh, Brad Nelson's Brad brother. Nelson's brother. So both of them have won an Invitational now. <laughs> pretty good gene pool. Uh <laughs> You and your half brother win. I guess like whichever parent uh, yeah. they share gets like a special trophy of their own. Yeah, I was just gonna say. I think they're step brothers or something. So I'm not quite sure it works, but you know, the, uh, it's it's na- it's nurture over nature. How about that? Well, I assumed they had at least one shared parent. Uh, Is that not true? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I feel like I'm not in position to. Well, we, <laughs> to we speculate don't. If, if, we don't if we don't know, lineage. we don't know. I guess. But yeah. props to them if it was if it was shared heritage. The uh, Grixis Death Shadow was Corey's deck. Uh, Orzov Hammer, that's with Dark Confidant in second. Azorius Control in third and fourth. Jund, and then Jeskai, uh, I believe it's Jeskai Control, but I might need to double check that. Uh, it was Jeskai, yeah, they listed as Jeskai Midrange, but it's basically a Jeskai Merktide deck. And then I've got this messed up here. It's Jeskai Merktide, and then Grixis Midrange... Uh, what am I missing here? Missing a deck off this list. Uh, Double Azorius Control, then Jund in 5th, Jeskai Midrange was listed as 7th, and then Grixis Midrange they list as 8th and then 17th. I don't know what's going on with their listing here. Hmm. That is odd. Anyway, I don't have the answer to resolve that particular statistical quirk, but I can tell you this much. This looks almost exactly like the same kind of thing that you see on Magic Online week week after week. Now, I don't think that's too surprising because this is all they have to go on, right? Like all of their testing probably happened for the most part on Magic Online. doesn't surprise me that the paper (laughs) stuff so far very closely resembles the Magic Online meta. Now, if we look over to the face-to-face games is basically the Star City Games of Canada. And they ran their first major tournament series this weekend. And this was a Toronto tour stop. And the top eight decks for the Saturday Modern Open uh, included, uh, let's see, Grixis Midrange. This is with DRCs, Ragavan, Croxus, Snapcasters, and a pile of spells. Uh, I don't see any, it's got Lurus, of course, but I don't see any Death Shadow in that build. And then Hammer Time in second, Merktide in third, um, Burn in fourth, Indomitable 
uh, sorry, Living End in fifth, Indomitable Creativity in sixth. We haven't seen that one online in a little bit. Um, and then Blue, there's a Teamer Reclamation list, which is probably the spiciest thing here, played by somebody uh, by the name of Mikhail Payette. And it was two Renin Six, three Teferi Time Raveler, or Jace the Mind Sculptor, three Snapcaster Mage, 20 Instants, uh, including Counter Spells, Expansion Explosion, Archmage's Charm, Memory Deluge, and a Nexus of Fate. And then three Wilderness Reclamation and four Shark Typhoon. Spicy. Yeah, I haven't seen that in a, in a while for sure. I remember it's popped up once or twice, but certainly not with any regularity, at least uh, on Moto that we've seen. Well, I think the last one we saw that was using Wilderness Rec was a Sultai list, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, team, might have been. Um, and then a jund list in eight and then over on the sunday they had four color yorion uh running four ardently that's new tech as far as i know uh and then jund in second and murktide in third azorius control in fourth and then hammer time burn crashing footfalls and azorius control rounding things out so across those four tournaments two online two off we do see Fairly healthy looking format, 10 or 15 viable decks. Companions don't seem to be doing too much damage at present, uh, but there's certainly a uh, a constant major component, a pivotal component of the format. Yeah, and it seems at the moment that you could probably consider that Modern seems to have uh, settled. I think is a fair way to look at it. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like we're seeing the significant churn in the, you know, week in and week out. Like, what the hell is this deck uh, that we got right after Modern Horizons 2? It's kind of found its, you know, four to eight, you know, t- to four or five very common decks and, and the other four or five sort of outliers. Yep, something like that. Top paper movers, pretty uh, calm week, really. Um a lot of random stuff on the move, but of notables in the non-foil category. Wand of Orcus. Uh, I think that's the... Uh, I'm not sure if that's the EAs or the regulars that we're looking at. Let me just check the, the price of Wand of Orcus. If it's 10 to 15, that's probably the EAs, isn't it? Probably. No, I think it's the regulars, actually, so it is notable. Really? Yeah, market price on regulars is up to 14 and there yeah, are we have s- somebody in our uh, group who was really into this card, weren't they? Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, it won't mean anything to the listeners that aren't pro traders, but yeah, one of the Discord members definitely was in early on extended art wand of Orcus. The copies lowest copy near mint is at thirteen fifty. There's ten listings left. These cards could go to thirty plus. Wilhelt is the number one commander of the last month on EDH Rec. If we look at top commanders past month, Will Health is at fourteen hundred and fifty-six decks. The ni- next closest is Tovalar at just under a thousand, so fifty percent more than the next closest. And you've got Prosper Tomebound still in the top five from the summer at around a thousand a month. Kenrith uh, as a replacement, I think, for Golos. I think that's Golos players rebuilding their decks to have Kenrith take charge. Yeah. Yeah, And then Edgar Markov, I actually suspect, is going to move up to first. I, I think it's entirely possible that a month Markov is definitely top three, if not number one. Because 
It's, it's going to be close. It'll be between Wilhelm and, and Markov. There's been a bunch of cool vampires revealed, as we're going to talk about later uh, from Crimson Vow. But Markov is still, to my mind, the go-to vampire commander because he's three-color. He has an eminence ability and abilities that happen automatically when the commander's not in play are inherently broken. Um, and he works really well with all the other things that the vampires have going on. So I expect Markov to... To move up here against Kenrith at least. Markov is a real good card that's going to fit with a very popular tribe at the moment. Which and I think, you know, I think that's part of the reason why our uh our top paper movers are a little slower this week, because Shadows over Innerstrad is a or sorry, Crimson Vow is a tribal set, which means you could see the picks from three months away you know when they announce something like kaladesh like oh it's an artifact set okay well that gives us a couple cards we can go after but we kind of have to see what the cards are to to know what's good but you know they say okay we're going back to innistrad okay vampires zombies uh you know maybe some spirits some werewolves like it's also obvious that everything kind of got picked over already so as the new cards are being revealed i feel like we're not seeing something going oh my god suddenly this card's really good it's just like yeah this is exactly what we expected to see we're in a very heavy tribal year where almost every standard release is heavily tribal and there's also a lot of overlapping tribal themes so between these two innistrad sets at first it seemed like the first set was going to be about uh werewolves and zombies then it was supposed to be vampires and spirits this time around and that's true in terms of how they're heading the commander decks that are being released alongside but it's not actually true now that we've seen a significant portion of crimson vow in terms of the theming of the sets there are there is uh zombie and vampire support galore in crimson vow they also had solid pieces in midnight hunt and vice versa with the uh, spirits and werewolves so the bottom line is you're basically getting two full standard sets that focus on those four tribes and they happen to be popular tribes to begin with especially zombies and uh, vampires the werewolves there was a lot of pent-up demand now that we got tovalar as a good commander that's custom tailored to generate activity on the werewolf cards and now spirits i think is going to get a boost because we're not only are we getting solid spirit support from the commander deck that's coming out alongside crimson vow but the set itself has a bunch of spirits synergies and then we're heading into kamigawa neon uh, dynasty which will absolutely have a bunch of spirits because spirits was one of the major tribes on that plane you didn't they can like actually confirm that oh for like, sure i, I, I yeah, feel yeah, like yeah. i read somewhere that they like said we are we are doing this yeah for sure they are like that that's kind of the whole thing and as i said earlier on on some other episode of the cast like they're for sure going to lean into the ghost in the machine tropes for cyberpunk where it's all about like the spirits inhabiting technology like that's just totally obvious way to go with that and one of the key foundational like conceptual reasons why they're doing cyberpunk on on kamigawa mm. Yeah, so, it'll be uh, interesting to see how they implement that. So side note, on the topic of Edgar Markov, A, props to anybody who bought this deck casually in 2017. Boy, are you winning. Because that deck was, whatever, $40 at release. And Markov alone out of that deck is now $130 minimum. There are just Ooh, Is he really that much? I don't think I noticed that. There are just five listings left on tcg player they go from 130 to 140 and then somebody has a placeholder copy posted at 500 and here's the thing 
I, when they announced that there was box, top, box toppers for Crimson Vow and not for uh, Midnight Hunt, the assumption was they were going to pull a Zendikar and put a bunch of great Halloween-themed stuff in those box topper slots so that, you know, some of this stuff would, would have a pressure release valve. Like, Markov would get a new, hot, fancy version that even though the originals are over 100 bucks, maybe that version would come down to 20, 30, 40 or whatever in the in the face of overwhelming supply influx. But that's not what they did. They didn't provide any reprints in those slots. They just uh, stole Dracula's IP because it's uh, not owned by anybody. Like it's, it's <laughs> yeah. what, what do you call it? Um, public domain. Pu- public domain IP. So <laughs> somebody got it, was like, is getting their bonus on the basis of paying zero for Dracula IP. And as a result, there's no, like, where are they going to reprint Edgar Markov? There's, there's nothing short of a secret layer dedicated to that stuff that you would expect it to show up. And the thing is, we just got the secret layer that was Halloween themed and went alongside the Innistrad stuff and it wasn't there. So very unlikely that it's going to show up in one like next spring when it's completely out of flavor for the the season. Um, Markov could easily be a $200 plus card before he ever has a chance at seeing a reprint. That's so dumb. I mean, he uh, was... He's, you know, being that expensive, if they didn't already have him in the pipeline, it would seem like the next logical place would be the list uh, because you can, you know, handle cards with yeah, higher price tags but, but, in that product line. But those aren't foils. But, right, A, they're not foils, and B, the inventory on those is never significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like, yeah, it would add some copies to the market, but, I mean, it basically would just stop the growth for a little while as opposed to it continuing to run rampant. Well, and here's the other thing about the list that people may not have figured out the flip side of. We talked about, when we were talking about the Stranger Things secret lair, that they had announced um, that they were going to go ahead and give us all those Stranger Things cards, the unique cards from the secret lair Stranger Things edition, when they come out in the winter, with the list starting in Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, one quarter of all list drops will be those that small set of cards okay mm-hmm. so that gets a bunch of them in, in circulation cool put that aside but we forgot to talk about the flip side of that coin if they're taking up a quarter of the list then everything else on the list is another 25 percent more rare yeah and and those yeah. those reprints were already not really having much of an effect on any of the the major cards so that less dampens the impact of the list reprints yet again. And as you said, even if Markov was to show up somewhere like that, which he could, he won't be in foil. <laughs> and I'm for sure selling Edgar Markov anywhere near 150 to 200 because I've got that deck sitting beside my desk. I was just about to start rebuilding it. And then I realized it comes with the oversized Markov. You don't need need the small Markov. I mean, I mostly play online anyway. People will probably appreciate having a bigger version of the card to read. So <laughs> I'll, I'll go ahead and table the the large version of Markov and get a like triple or quad on that deck. I mean, there's five or six other vampires in that deck that are worth money now too. I I wonder if I have any. I will have to uh, poke around and see what I can find. I don't remember if I do or not. And Markov's actually on this list, going from eighty to one twenty-five. 
uh, 56% gains this week. Spreading seas from Zendikar, 3 to 450. That's because it's a blue-white modern staple right now. Paradox Haze out of Time Spiral, original Time Spiral, not Time Spiral Remastered. Uh, foils going from 18 to 30. That's because the Lind decks that are built around Curses want to double up on their upkeep triggers. And while I was researching that, I realized that I'm supposed to be running Paradox Haze in the other broken up upkeep-based commander, uh, Alora. No, Aloro. Oh, Aloro. Because Aloro, that gains me four life per upkeep. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Paradox Haze is really cool. I remember making jank decks with it way back in the day, uh, but it has some le- very legitimate, potent uses depending on your format. Yep. Temple Garden, original foils at a Ravnica, 115 to 185, 60% gains. Further confirmation of my theories from earlier this fall about how Ravnica era shock foils were going to keep climbing, and indeed they are. We've seen multiple of them on the on the rise in the last couple months. Uh, Corpse Harvester, foils out of Legions, 850 to 15, that's about 75% gains. Again, Will Helt is the number one commander of the month, so no huge surprise there on an old border foil. Um, in fact, I pulled out, I don't know, 20 or 30 what used to be 50 cent zombie old border foils that are now, some of them are one or two bucks and I'm, there's no way I'm, I'm going to do anything with them except buy list them. But a few of them are up to 10, 15, 20 dollars. I think I looked at Phyrexian Scuda. Yeah, I remember that card. Which is a nothing, like really. Like, yep. You don't need to be running this in your commander deck, but the lowest price foil on TCG for that is about 100 bucks and there's only one copy listed. So, yeah, because why would anyone have this card? Any, any, <laughs> There's no reason for anyone to have this in their possession. I'll tell you that completionists that collected foils in that era, boy, they're if they can find the right buyer, their exit's going to be real sweet. Because in a yeah. lot of those cases, you could take 40% of TCG and still be <laughs> feel like you're killing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bladewing the Risen out of FTV Dragons, foil version of the card, of course. 6 to 12, 100% gains on the back of Tiamat, uh, still being relatively popular at present. Inspiring Call, uh, foils out of Dragons at Arkir, 5 to 10. That's on the back of uh, Leonore, uh, the commander that cares about plus 1, plus 1 canners. And then Tidal Kraken uh, foils at a 9th edition from 3 to 650. This is on the back of Runo Stromkirk who is basically a Kraken combo lord vampire that was just revealed in Crimson Vow. I'm very dubious about this commander being popular, uh, but <laughs> doesn't mean there's not going to be motion on dumb cards like this because there are very few options. So there's not really any debate which of these Krakens and Leviathans and so forth are going in your deck. It's all of them because there's not many. So you're just going to run the ones you can. Yeah, I spent some time trying to today trying to figure out if there were any entry points on this stuff because I, he jumped out at me as like, oh, this is a card people will actually play because um, he's a good commander for the for the tribes. But there, the you know, like I thought the best one was um, Slin. Is that his name? Yeah, Slin seemed like he might be your best bet. Uh, this is not, I'm not like advocating this as an actual pick, but I did look at him. He's the uncommon from Dominaria, but, uh, if you kick him, he bounces everything other than Krakens, Leviathans, Octopus, Octopi, and Serpents. So how do you spell it? S L I N N. 
Uh, Slin Boda, um, the Rising Deep. Yeah, but like if you're going to build a deck with this creature type, he's like number two on your list of cards to add. Um, so I do like him. I kind of like him, but he's, you know, uncommon and Dominari's not that old. The supply isn't that deep, but I do have a suspicion that it probably got rated a bit. Do you, do you even already? Get, do you even get to. You can't kick as you're bringing it out of the graveyard with your commander, though, right? No, I mean, I think the assumption here is just. If you're going to build a card deck with those cards in it, you're going to put him in it, right? Oh, you're gonna have to because, as I said, you don't have better options. Right, right, right. But it's it's but you know some people might like go light on the theme or what have you. But it's like if 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 that guy is your commander, you are 100% putting this card in your deck. Yep, probably true. Uh, yeah, but so but I I would agree. I'm just those those krakens in general. I think I, I think the commander will end up being popular. To some extent, some extent, but probably not enough to really move a lot of this stuff. And the, the cards that you would have wanted to grab, uh, like foil rec seals, are already gone. You know, those were anything that was palatable was bought probably the night he was spoiled. Yep. Because there were only two choices. So wrapping up our top paper movers, Pernicious Deed out of Apocalypse foils from 160 to 380. I got off a good copy of that in a commander game recently and wiped a whole shit ton of permanents. Yeah, still, card is still, uh, real good. Still feels good all those years later. Uh, real good. OG printing. I don't know what the real price on this is now. I'd guess it's somewhere between 180 and 250 or something, and you have trouble finding a buyer. Spear- I, I, I think I have a japanese pack foil pernicious Ooh, deed that's pretty yeah. hot i might be willing to trade into that actually i play yeah. i run it in uh moldratha because of course you can just keep bringing it back as an enchantment permanent mm-hmm. uh spirit bonds uh at a m15 foils 225 to 7 on the back of spirit hype uh 200 plus gains to wrap things up isn't that the didn't i talk about that one like a week or two ago I did. That was my pick. Uh, 293. I had foils from 250 to 6. Well, you're well on your uh, way. There we go. This is this is almost exactly what I had. <clears throat> 225 to 7 according to this. So. Alright, good on you. That's me shooting. Now, hopefully it holds okay. long enough for people to get their exits. Uh, I, I have confidence that, as I said, with Kamigawa, there's more spirit action coming. I won't be surprised at all if one of the commander decks for the Kamigawa release is spirit-focused, um, which would be two back-to-backs. And keep in mind that Kaldheim already coughed up a solid spirit commander. Um, what's the name of that one? I was just looking at it uh, earlier today. Commander is... Oh, I think he's not actually listed on EDH rec in the sets. He's in the Kaldheim Commander. Raynar the Ever Watchful. That's the 2-3 for 2 white blue. Spirit Warrior, Flying Vigilance. The first card you foretell each turn costs 0 to foretell. And when you exile one or more cards from your hand and or permanence from the battlefield, create a 1-1 white spirit creature token with flying. That actually ties into one of my picks this week. So I'll circle back later on how he is... Sort of a spirit commander, but actually has a whole bunch of other utility layered inside his text. Yeah, he's a that's a cool commander, but I don't really think of him as a spirit commander. Uh, not, I mean, not in the way that if you're building some sort of semi-spirit tribal deck, like he's. I don't think he'd be your first pick. I'm just trying to see if spirit bonds shows up in his played cards. 
Uh, not super high on the list anyway. Yeah, you definitely don't need to build him for spirits, but between the new spirit commander that you do get out of the Crimson Vow and what I, I, ver I will not at all be surprised if it's like a ninja's deck and a spirit's deck for uh, Kamigawa. Uh, those do seem to be the obvious ones, especially because, you know, in Innistrad, you're like, okay, we have to have zombies and vampires, right? Like those, we are con obligated by law to give our players those commander decks. But with Kamigawa, it's a little less. So like, it's like, yeah, okay, we don't have to give one of these super standard tribes. Like it gives us more room to do the ninjas and the spirits type of thing. Yep, yep. So Moving on over to the top Magic Online movers of the week, we've got Silent Clearing out of MH1, going from 7.5 ticks or so to about 13, 80% uh, gains on the back of Dark Hammer Time needing the card. Uh, unclear whether the black-white versions are going to last, so I like selling into this hype cycle. Pure Steel Paladin from Double Masters going from 4 tickets to 7.5, also Hammer Time variants. Mox Amber... Um, going from 1.6 or so ticks to 3.4. That's 115% gains. Boy, that is a card that just keeps on giving. The number of times Mox Amber has made people money in both digital and paper <laughs> is getting hard to remember. Uh, a lot, let's put it that way. This is on the back of a Grinding Station 5-0 deck in Modern. Uh, and I, it, this, is, this is a crazy, crazy deck. Let me just get, get, find where I posted this in our... There it is. So four Dragon's Rage Chandler, four Ragavan. So far, we sound like an aggro deck. What? Yeah. <laughs> this is a grinding station deck? <laughs> listen, listen, listen. This, is, this, this deck is a masterpiece. Dra four Dragon's Rage Chandler, four Ragavan, one Thassa's Oracle, one Brazen Borrower, four Emery Lurker of the Lock, two Renin Six, two Lightning Bolt, two Unholy Heat, three Expressive Iteration, four Mishra's Bobble, four Mox Amber, one Ether Spellbomb, one Shadow Spear, one Springleaf Drum, Three Grinding Station, three Underworld Breach, four Urza Saga and the Land Base. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's quite a list. I feel like I would have to sit and look at that for a minute or two to parse that. There, there is a lot of clever magic building going on here. I just sent you the list over in, yeah. in our chat. It definitely it sounds like he's got essentially a beatdown plan with at least one combo in there. Does yeah. he have two combos in there? Yeah, because there's a Thassa's Oracle thing you can do, Underworld Breach, and Grinding Station are the main combo components, right? Yeah. And then uh, and I then Emery. And then Emery. Yeah, I, I I'm trying to figure out if that's one combo or two. Hmm. That's that's a fun deck. Mox Amber, man. Mox Amber. Yep, so that, that was a 5-0, and Mox Amber responded accordingly. And then there was Oswald Fiddlebender, a card I almost put down as a card to watch this week. I couldn't quite convince myself that this was the moment to call it out, but it, you can get foils and foil showcases for like two or three bucks, and this thing is basically a birthing pod for artifacts. You sack an artifact, and if it costs one, you go get a two-casting-cost artifact out of your EDH deck and put it into play. Mm. Thing is, it showed up in an affinity, mono-white affinity build that 5 out this week in Modern. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. He does seem like the type of card that might not be immediately slotted into decks. People will kind of have to tinker with him and figure out, tinker, where <laughs> they're going to make him work. Because he will require some rejiggering to, to, to make use of. I is probably I think it's reported in a reasonable number of decks so far on EDH Rec, but it hasn't really been on folks' radar. And if it was a mythic, I'd probably be jumping in earlier, but as a rare, there's probably a little bit of time. The people might look at him as a commander, but he's reported in twenty four hundred decks so far. That's pretty respectable. Um and I suspect that any of the artifact based uh, recursion combo-y decks like your Breas and so forth are that are running white are going to want to run this card. Like for sure this deserves a slot in Brea. Um, it's just so many so many tricky little things you can do with this. And yeah, all- I mean it's a remarkably powerful effect and I mean in the right build that would be you know basically better than Birthing Pot. I mean Birthing Pot obviously is a ludicrous card in, in a vacuum uh, but I mean if you're heavy on the artifacts he's he's where you want to be. Yep. So that was Oswald Philibender. And then the other, I guess the biggest gainer of the week was Opposition Masterpiece copies. I asked around to see if Oko had any information about why this moved. He knew nothing. So I assume it's just, it's not even like there was a drop rate change. I suspect it's just such a low supply card that... Oh yeah, this is online too, isn't it? Yeah, it just slowly drained out of Magic Online. It went from 0.57 ticks to 1.89. Sure. All right. Sure. Moving on over to cards to watch. On the back of that discussion uh, about Raynar, the ever watchful, you know what Raynar really likes to do is flicker things in and out of play. Because it says, whenever you exile one or more cards from your hand and or permanence from the battlefield, create a 1-1 white spirit creature token with flying. So he's got that foretell uh, thing going on. So you're just going to take that small swath of foretell cards from Keltheim and, and dump them into the deck your Doom Scars and whatever, your Alruined Epiphanies. But what you really want to be doing is flickering a bunch of stuff for value and then getting these bonus spirit tokens. And one of the better cards to do that with is out of the uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms set, and I'm talking about Teleportation Circle. Now, lots of people were talking about Robe of Stars as a potential EDH staple out of that set, and I think we've talked about it on here before. Uh, one in a white for an equipment that gives the creature plus zero plus three. Equip cost is one, and then it has astral projection for one in a white equipped creature phases out. Kind of a nice like lightning greaves analog for a commander where you can protect them or a key combo creature piece. You can protect them with the rope of stars and uh, and then equip them up again and hopefully a- avoid any gaps where people can kill the thing at instant speed. But Teleportation Circle is even more broadly applicable. This is an enchantment for three and a white. At the beginning of your end step, exile up to one target artifact or creature you control, then return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control. So it's like a Yorion effect for a single permanent uh, artifact or creature, and you just get to do it every turn. This is uh, this is Conjurer's Closet. Right. Like, like virtually almost word for word. It adds artifacts, and it makes and it's white, and it's one less. So it's an excellent repeating blink effect with multiple applications in EDH. So far reported in 3,700 EDH rec decks, 6% of all white decks. And the thing is that that AFR stuff is draining out real fast, right? 
So if we take a look at uh, teleportation circle on extended art foils on TCG player, we're talking about 150 listings or so for the normal copies. And then if we're looking at the foils near mint, we're down to 40 listings starting at about four and a half bucks plus shipping. Let's call it $5 all told. I think for this to go five to 15 in a year should be real easy. There's just, this is a very broadly applicable white enchantment. It's got that kind of smothering tidy vibe where it's not quite that level of a staple, but it's going to fit into a lot more decks than you, than you think it will. Oh yeah. The card is, is very powerful. I mean, Conjurer's Closet is great. Um, and would probably be worth more if it hadn't been printed a handful of times. I mean, Conjurer's Closet's in 20,000 decks. So this is white. It'll probably end up being, it'll cut down on that a little bit, obviously. Uh, but probably in what the 10 ish thousand range, uh, would be my guess, maybe slightly less than that. So that's going to be pretty solid numbers. We're looking at the extended art foils for five bucks. I mean, that's, that's quite cheap as well. Um, I mean, the nice thing here is Contra's Closet only deals with creatures. This also deals with artifacts. And as you said, right. it costs one less. And I would argue also that Enchantments is the least vulnerable permanent type in EDH. I mean, it might be Planeswalkers, but uh, in your average game, Enchantments, a um, little less vulnerable than Artifacts. Although, of course, the the green and white effects that affect both will, will often catch you out. But that said, I see... This one would be on under the radar for a lot of people. It's a little cheaper over in Europe. You probably get them pretty cheap in Japan as well. I'm I'm happy to have ten or twelve copies of this around five bucks and look to double or triple at some point. Yeah, I think uh, I think you'll probably be you know the timeline on this might be a touch longer, but that's fine. I mean, you know, my cards are longer as well. Um, but the effects are very useful. Brago was a very popular commander for a long time and was white, and every deck that played him would have run it. Um, and, you know, there's a variety of decks now, variety of commanders that accomplish that, uh, and they would all play Teleportation Circle. So it's it's definitely going to be a perennial white staple. Um, I don't know if it's perennial the right word there. I don't know. Definitely going to be a, a consistent white staple in uh, a subset of decks, for sure. Yeah, I think you can get away with perennial there. The So give me your first <laughs> selection of the week. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I have to say, I went looking through, this kind of touches on what I mentioned earlier, but I went looking through all the spoilers for Crimson Vow, and I really found myself unable to pull any good specs out of there. And I don't mean to spec on Crimson Vow cards, but to see what they were enabling that I wanted to go spec on. And nothing really did it for me. I think it's, again, because they're all tribal. So all of the interesting cards kind of were already obvious. I didn't really see much in the way of interesting abilities or card text that I was like, ooh, this is this is going to pair well with this, or this will make that interesting. Um, and the ones that did seem like they were powerful or interesting were just so obviously so. And not clever, like the... The three mana wolf that like eats cards out of graveyards and makes those cards cheaper. Like I, there's nothing, there's nothing I can do with that, right? There's no, there's no great combo with that. Like the white training guy, I don't know. So, my point being is that I really wanted to make some pick some stuff based on the Crimson Draw spoilers, but just nothing jumped out at me. I did, however, um, find a couple other odds and ends. The first is, did you know Mystical Dispute is the sixth most played card in modern? No, I did not. 
Yeah, that is a very popular card, it would seem. Uh, there's only two versions of this card. There's the pack copy and there's a Pro Tour copy. Uh, this isn't really played in EDH. It's in like 2,000 decks. It's not relevant. However, it is the sixth, six, six, boy, my uh, youthful lisp makes this card, makes that word difficult to pronounce correctly. Uh, the sixth most played spell in modern. So you're getting a lot of play there as opposed to EDH. Um, the nice thing here is it's typically bought as a three or four X because it's a modern card, not an EDH card. And it's an uncommon from Throne of Drain. So the supply is higher, but you're moving more copies of it based on selling play sets. There are 43 vendors with copies of Mystical Dispute. So and, and there's no walls. Uh, sorry, we're looking at foils here, foil copies. There's 43 vendors, no walls. Um, so the supply is like medium-ish, but when you're selling in threes and fours, it's a lot different than selling singles. And the Pro Tour copy of this card is 30 bucks and doesn't really look any different as far as I can tell. It just seems to be a Japanese version of the card. So you can get these foils, the pack foils for $4. Uh, I think you can snag them. You know, it sells... You'll, it sells a couple foils every few days, um, roughly on average. So buy them at four-ish dollars, uh, and then you know it's going to take a little bit of time. But ideally, you can see these up in the ten and fifteen range as a modern staple, a foil modern staple that probably won't have a reprint in the next year, um, and people will be will be picking up, still be picking up places of them then too. So the last time we called this card was episode one ninety four. Hmm. Date on that. You know, I did search for it in this sheet and didn't see it. And I'm like, okay, that's 50 episodes. I, that's I'm in the clear on yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, you're absolved. This is two years ago, uh, almost exactly two years ago. It was uh, November 12th, 2019, and the call at the time was for it to go six to twelve. Uh, very low supply for a 50% booster eld uncommon foil, and better with veil band in pioneer. And since that <laughs> time, it did get high and then fade back, but. Now it's set up for a pretty steep incline because a lot of the major decks in modern are blue. And if they're blue and they're playing against other blue decks, then they're going to use Mystics of Dispute out of their sideboard to counter key blue spells. Because all of the following decks can both run the card and be a reason to run the card against them. Crashing Footfalls, Murktide Regent, Azorius Control and Jeskai Control, Blue Living, e Living End that includes blue, the blue-red uh, low-slung variants that don't run Murktide, five-color and four-color Omnath builds, blue-black mill, and reanimator and indomitable creativity, and that's probably just off the top. <laughs> like, that's a lot of decks. Yeah. So, yeah, I like this. I like this in this particular time slot. There's no good place for them to reprint this card anytime soon. It's a outside chance you might see it in the Commander Legends Oh, not not even. It's not really a commander card, so they're probably not a commander card. It would it would fit in D and D uh, as a card name, but yeah, it's not really a commander card. So it probably misses it there. I think Secret Layer is the most likely place to see this, and that probably has not has no impact on original pack foils. Um, I, I suspect that these pack foils are eventually give it two, maybe three years, going to be thirty dollars plus cards. Yeah, that's kind of where I was leaning with this. Is it's not a card that's going to move really quickly. <clears throat> 
but it's not a card that they're going to be in a rush to reprint. It's not a commander staple. There's no pressure there. You'll be able to buy cheap copies of this all day long because it was an uncommon in Throne of Eldraine. So it's not like there's an imperative from Wizards' side to make sure their players can get any copy of it. It's not like Edgar Markov where like they literally can't afford a copy. Uh, and you know these uncommon modern format staples end up a lot more expensive than people realize sometimes. Well, and the other thing here is that they don't print color-based hate for sideboards very often like very infrequently these days and so this is likely to be the best anti-blue control sideboard option for a long time yeah yeah that's true too because it's, I, it's, right such, a it's, it's, it's such a catch-all like if you have a format where only one of the major decks is artifact based stony silence is going to fall out of favor for a sideboard slot but with so many of these decks being blue and casting completely different kinds of blue spells this just has so many applications yeah it does seem unlikely that uh this would fall out of favor in any meaningful way based on the the current that what we've seen in the modern metagame over the last you know year or two so here's another blue spell that might be under people's radar wizard class Given this 12 months for these pack foils to go, say, one or two bucks to eight, you can get them as low as a dollar in Europe, closer to two, two and a half in the U.S. This is already in 4,800 EDH rec uh, decks. That's 8% of all blue decks since it was uh, uh, printed in Adventures of the Forgotten Realms this summer. It's also notable that there are no alternate versions of this at all because it's a foil uncommon. So there's no pre-release promo, there's no ampersand promo, there's no foil extended art, there's nothing. It's just pack foil, and it's basically three great enchantments in one. It gives you no max hand size, which is an effect that people have put into their EDH decks for ages, uh, and in a color where that effect is often most used. It then draws you two cards when you level it up. And then when you, after you level it up the third time, and the second time can help you get to the third time, by the way, uh, when you draw cards, you start putting counters on creatures, which is going to lead to some kind of combo, presumably. Somerset, single treatment. The overall uh, inventory on TCG is not particularly deep. I think we're looking at, uh, I think it was something like 60 listings. Let me just double check. TCG foil near mint down to 35 listings. That is really low for a foil uncommon that just came out four months ago. Yeah. So, yeah, it is. I think we have every reason to believe that this is going to be out of print for a while and that these foils are going to be double digits before you ever see it get reprinted again. Yeah, uh, that is some significant play pattern on, but uncommon too. I think it's interesting. I think one of the things that people that don't really consider the class cards from AFR very carefully miss is that they are not saga cards. It doesn't go one, two, three, gone. These things are meant to scale into giving you multiple benefits that last. But, but mo most of them are not often not worth targeting by themselves. So like wasting a 
pinpoint removal spell on an enchantment is unlikely to target your wizard class. So this thing, you almost always end up getting full value out of it if the game goes long enough. Yeah, you're really only ever going to lose this to like a board wipe type effect. No one's going to go, no one's going to make a point of destroying no. your your wizard class enchantment. So, I mean, you'll, you know, and you'll eat one of those, uh, one or two of those a game maybe, but for the most part, this is going to be useful. People really like the maximum hand size effects. It's actually, I think it makes for terrible games, um, but they are popular regardless. So, yeah, wizard class foils, probably almost certainly underrated under two bucks. Interesting. I would not have, uh, probably not have guessed, but I think it's a good choice regardless. That's the type of thing that I like to grab where it's, you know, it, it doesn't jump off the page at you as a great option, but the numbers work in your favor. And it's the type of card that people are going to look at later on and be like, huh? That's surprising. Final point on this is it also means you can't get ampersand promo play sets of the class cards because the uncommon cards didn't get one. Which is a little unfortunate. Bummer. All right, tell me about your next one. Uh, my other card this week is Growth Spiral, the Strixhaven Mystical Archives, specifically. Now, are we talking about English global art mystical archive or Japanese? English, English art, English language foil mystical archives the japanese ones are also kind of tempting but not quite as much um the english ones are great because you can get these for about two dollars right now the english mystical archive growth spirals uh it's in forty thousand edh rec decks but uh like i said it's two roughly two dollars for copies of this and the ck buy list is two dollars like this is they will basically pay tcg low for these english foils right now uh there are no walls in there, there are 74 vendors. So again, supply is still pretty hefty. Um, we're we're getting, we've moved away from Strixhaven a little bit, but we're not that far away. Clearly these mystical archives are gonna take a little bit longer to burn through than I think people anticipated. The supply ended up fairly high, but this card is very popular in EDH. Uh, people are gonna keep putting it in their decks, especially at $2. Uh, and it sells on average about two foils a day. So, I mean, obviously there's gonna be a replenish rate, but it, it is gonna move through that inventory over the course of the next several months. Um, and God willing, TCG player fixes their other versions link, and then that will probably help quite a bit too. Uh, so, I mean, just grabbing these as cheap throw-ins whenever you're placing other orders seems like it'll work out in your favor, because I bet you can get somewhere between six and $10 a copy for these next year, maybe a little past that. Um, the Japanese ones I think are like, 11 10 or 11 low uh ck's buying those at 9 850 so those are also tempting um but i think these are are better choice at the moment now the japanese art is clearly superior and you can but they're 12 bucks for the foils so in mm -hmm. terms of percentage growth upside clearly higher uh on the english copies i don't really favor that art i think at the two dollar price point i would at least consider the FNM promo foils that are uh, under two bucks and have Seb McKinnon art. I, I mean, I, I, I see where you're. I know what card you're talking about. It's got that color saturated yeah. text box. Yeah. I, I don't think those are bad. I, I have a gut feeling that players are drawn more to the overall package on a card than the art. And I think that the Seb McKinnon art is very good, but the border and treatment on the promo ultimately is 
more distinct, I will say. I'm not going to say better, just more distinct. And same as the Japanese ones, right? The, Jap- the Japanese all are very much so. I think those are going to draw more attention simply because of that. What you really need is for Saltai reclamation to be a thing in modern on a permanent basis. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like it could be. Because, I mean, this does poke its head in the modern on occasion. I mean, I'm not banking on it, but it absolutely does. I always forget that this is an instant that can put lands into play on other people's turns. Yeah. I mean, I like the Japanese one, too. Like, if I was going to buy this, I would buy the Japanese ones. But, you know, you know how players feel about foreign language cards. They're the... <clears throat> You can certainly sell foreign language cards, but there's no doubt that the English are still more popular, especially when we're talking about stuff like this. So um, I, I think you'll be better. It'll be easier selling the English ones for the most part than the Japanese ones, despite the Japanese ones looking better. I think we have to underscore here that this is a 40,000 EDH rec card, whereas almost everything else on this list today is like 10 times less. Yeah. So it's not like usually 10, 8 to 10. Yeah. Th- this card sells. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm going to exit this part of the conversation not being certain which of these three versions to target, but I would certainly agree it is a card to watch. Um, okay. My final pick here is another slightly under the radar one that we talked about uh, during our set review, but haven't really talked about since. Uh, Grim Hireling is reportedly in 3,700 decks on EDH Rec so far down to just 32 listings for uh, the extended art version on TCG Player and features a very strong play pattern related to treasure tokens, which is an evergreen mechanic that I suspect, given enough time, will approach the ubiquity of plus one plus one counters in our game. Grim Hireling is a 3-2 for three and a black. It's a tiefling rogue. It's probably got some rogue support coming in Kamigawa Neon Destiny, I would imagine. Whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player, it's one or more creatures, you get two treasure tokens. And then it has a activated ability for one black, you sack X to- treasure tokens, and target creature gets minus X minus X until end of turn. The more treasure cards they print, the sexier this gets in your treasure token-based decks that are running Academy, Manufacturer, and all sorts of other nonsense across multiple colors. And eventually they're going to give us a real sexy token, like utility token based commander and all hell's going to break loose on the related cards. This card is really potent. Uh, I mean, I guess you're only ever getting two treasure tokens in a combat. Well, if there's a, so if there's a Zorn in play, you're getting three. Wh- there's a bunch of doubling effects that give you four. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I mean, it's not like it's for each creature. So if you manage yeah. to ping them with six tokens, you're not getting yeah. 12 treasures or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's... I don't remember how this works in EDH. If you if you hit two players at the same time, if this triggers once or not, it definitely won't... No matter how many creatures you have that hit one player, it will only happen once. But I don't remember if how that would work with multiple well, it players. Says, whenever one or more creatures you control deal combat damage to a player. Not Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure either actually. I don't know the ruling on that. If you split your attack, you're wondering whether you get 4. Yeah. Or 6 yeah. if it's all 3. Yeah. Well, that's what I am wondering. We'll have to double check that. E- either way, I mean even if it's not even if you're maxing out at 2, it's still I mean 2 is good. If it was 1, you'd be like, "Yeah." But 2 is 2. 
two is twice as many as one. So, so here <laughs> sounds reductive, but like that doubles the power of where the card might have been on one token, which also makes all the other effects that double it that much better. Um, so I do like him quite a bit. I think he will probably end up reasonably popular. I would, I would suspect. I'm gonna be honest. I would suspect that if we see a treasure token commander, he's not gonna be black. The uh, color here is the most well, awkward part of this well, but, because treasure tokens are like what tertiary in black. Mm, there's plenty of black action in black, but m- more to the point, the deck that runs the most copies of these that has justified something like forty percent of all the reported decks on EDH Rec is the one that's currently in number three in the top five commanders of the month, Prosper Tome Band. Two black and a red for a one-four Death Touch Tiefling Warlock. Mystic Arcanum, at the beginning of your end step, exile the top card of your library until the end of your next turn. You may play that card, and then Pact Boon, whenever you play a card from exile, create a treasure token. So, yeah. And, and so you build, that's the red half of them. Yeah, so you build Prosper to do all sorts of shenanigans with the tokens, <clears throat> and then this fits right in there. Yeah, it's interesting. The treasure tokens seem to are definitely primary in red, but we see them. We've seen them in white, but I think they said they're not doing that anymore. Well, like one of the big, uh, one of the really popular cards that I looked at and couldn't quite convince myself was was a spec. Is the black instant that's basically village rights, but it costs one more, and you get a treasure token. Hmm. So there's there's definitely hmm. treasure token production in black. That's on. Yeah, the yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying it's not out there. I'm just like it. They 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 do hierarchies for this stuff, right? So the the prominent the primary treasure token color is red. I don't I don't know if they consider blue to be on equal footing with red, or if blue is considered second level, like secondary. And then it seems like green and black are in there as well. Like there's prosperous innkeeper, the green uncommon there's prosper tonebound black and red so it's it shows up right i just if i'm just pointing out that if uh grim hireling were red and not black at all he would be guaranteed to land in any treasure token commander being mono black it just seems a little bit less likely because you might get like a red blue treasure token commander and i say that out loud and i'm wondering if one got printed that i'm forgetting about there's so many now. What did they say? Something like 40% of all legendary creatures in Magic were printed in the last two years. Yeah. Um, so I might have lost track. But I do think that, but I mean, that that point aside, he is a cool card that people will want to play in, in any treasure-based deck that he fits. And it doesn't have to be treasure-based. It might be artifact-based, some sort of black artifact-based in some fashion. Um, which would definitely, he would definitely be handy in. So, I, I mean, I think you're, you know, the extended art foils are on four bucks for a card mm. that's... Non-foils. There's no such thing as foils because it's a, it's the extended arts that show up in collector booster packs that are not available anywhere else. Oh, okay. You've got it marked as foil on the sheet. So I, that's oh, what I was looking at it. Um, even still, the pre- the most premium version of this uh, at four bucks is is certainly tempting um, and it will probably be a solid slow gr- grower. I don't want 20 of these, but I would at least snap off a playset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right about where I'd land. All right, so we're, we're back to having a solid discussion pick from the Pro Traders. This week's, uh, it comes from Carl Choi, a uh, frequent contributor in our Discord. He brings up Ebon Death Dracolich, a mid-tier mythic from the AFR set, definitely an AFR sub-theme here. 
And the thing about Ebendath Dracolich is it is a dragon and a zombie. And you have both Tiamat and Wilhelt in your top 10 commanders right now. So both tribes are covered. And this does a surprising amount of work in a good zombie deck, right? Because it's a 5-2 flash flying dragon for 4. And it enters the battlefield tapped. Who cares? That's standard zombie action. You may cast it from your graveyard if a creature not named it died this turn. In a good zombie deck, you are sacrificing zombie tokens all the time. And whenever you do, or a dragon, uh, a zombie dies on the attack, which is going to happen because bigger things block some of them and the rest get through, you go ahead and cast this again. And because it's flash-based, you can do that as surprises to block something that's attacking you. You can... You know, sack something. This can be bigger because of your zombie lord, so it could end up being a 7-4 flyer flash for four. This seems like it earns a slot in Wilhelt, and it's already uh, reported in 1500 EDH rec, which is solid, not amazing. But the borderless foils are pretty low already. I think we're at... Let me see... Evan Lich, Evan Death Draculich, Borderless Foils, we are down to just over 100 for the non-foils. And then for Foil Near Mint, we're talking 21 listings starting at 20 bucks with a relatively steep ramp. 21 listings is nothing for a Foil Mythic that came out four months ago. And that is going to go 20 to 40, slowly but surely over time. No problem, it's especially with all the zombie support this fall. All you need is like 50 to 100 players in North America to decide they want a foil copy of this. There's also some uh, Dungeons & Dragon fan spillover potential here because Dracoliches is kind of like a major enemy in the game. So I like this one. I think it's pretty solid. I, I suspect it will go 20 to 40. I don't think I want 20 copies of it. But again, a playset or two and you're probably going to make some money. Yeah, I, I could admit to being... It doesn't. It's not as tempting as it might. As it, I uh, hold on, let me find the right way to say this. I was not terribly tempted by it at first. It's. I mean, the 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 borderless there the full art foils would look cool for especially on a you know it's a mythic. It's a it's a full art foil mythic, which are all good numbers, and twenty dollars isn't terribly expensive. But I'm looking at the card, and I'm like, eh. And the EDH play is at fifteen hundred, which isn't phenomenal. So I was prepared to kind of push back on this, but I do think about this, and it is four mana, and you can cast him from your graveyard if another creature died this turn, which sets him up for infinite combos. Because you can cast this from your graveyard, do something, do whatever it is that you need to do with him, sacrifice him, and as long as any other creature died this turn, you can cast him again, and so forth. So even if it's not infinite, you can probably you might be able to pay for a couple loops depending on what you're doing with him, uh, and that seems like it could be useful. But also, so also consider what Wilhelm's abilities are. Right, he has two abilities. Whenever another zombie you control dies, if it didn't have decayed, create a two-two black zombie creature token with decayed. So that means whenever they manage to off Ebon Death, you're getting a zombie. And then at the beginning of your end step, you can sack a zombie if you do draw a card. So, and then that sets you up to bring Ebon Death back into play. So he's, he plays very well with Wilhelm. 
Yeah. I mean, I, when I read it with Wilhel, I go, oh, so if you have any sort of ch- sack chain with Ebendath, even if it's not infinite, every time you loop it, you get a 2-2 with your commander. So, you know, you can be getting a 2-2 when you loop him if you have something else in play that, you know, deals damage based on his power or you gain life or something. Or ideally, you make some mana based on him coming into play. Uh, and then you can sack him with an Ashnaw's altar or something like that. Um, you know, you can get a real chain going there. I think... I I think I'm, I'm, I'm definitely medium on this. But if the... If the inventory is that low it kind of just settles it for me you yeah know? exactly it was totally off my radar until the inventory was nearly hollowed yeah that's that's essentially where i land is like am i excited about this card not really but is the inventory compelling yeah probably yeah i think that's where i land too it's it's a the thing about ED, the will help decks is they're not cdh focused decks like you're playing zombies because it's fun to play zombies. So you're building a, you're trying to create a blue black mid tier EDH deck that has as many cute little combos and synergies as possible. And they've printed so many zombie cards now that you you have more and more of that available to you. And Ebon Death fits in there nicely in there. I think one of the things that shouldn't be overlooked is it's it's a big flyer in in a tribe that doesn't have a lot of them. Like Innistrad as a plane has provided some blue uh, flying zombies, including a couple we're going to talk about as we get on to the uh, set review or the uh, previews here. But there's not that many of them. And getting getting your zombies in the air is a good thing. Yeah, he does give you uh, a useful component there that you wouldn't be getting otherwise um, in a deck like that. And being a dragon, too, gives you some additional angles that uh, could have some other utility. Um, I haven't really dug into what you might want to do with him in a dragon deck, but there might be something. All right, so that is Ebon Death Dracolich. Oil borderless mythic twenty to forty call of the year. The finishing things up topic of the week. We'll talk about all the latest spoilers from uh, Crimson Vow in Estrada Crimson Vow. Of course, the uh, the primary flag, as we uh, alluded to earlier in the show, is that the box toppers are all Dracula cards that only appear in the collector booster boxes and cannot be found uh, in the uh, regular boxes in foil i believe that's true let me just double check collecting crimson vow because that article was fairly complicated i want to make sure i don't trip. In- intentionally so oh, i'm sure oh, probably uh... yeah i saw you guys having quite a chat trying to put this together well the the main debate was about whether um foil uh Anime Soren is going to be the next Amano. So we'll get it, we'll get into that in a second. So the single the box topper boosters that are found in draft set and collector booster displays will be Jack Lister's card will be a traditional foil card. Yeah, 17 Dracula series cards can be opened in collector boosters. 
have to double back on that later. Let me read these paragraphs over again as we go along here. Because uh, I'm not 100% clear on whether it's the non... <laughs> I think the foils potentially are only in the CBs and the non-foils are the box toppers. That sounds right, if I remember the conversation. I, I'm going to let you solve that puzzle because I have no interest in trying to divine whatever it is they've managed to tell us here. So bottom line, there are three different treatments, border treatments, available in this set for some key cards. There's a Fang showcase treatment that uh, tends to be related to vampires. There is a, with alternate art, there's the black and white treatments that we saw starting in Midnight Hunt, and there is foil borderless where that's appropriate. So for instance, Soren the Mirthless has four different versions. And one of those versions, the art is by uh, Azami Kojima, who is famous for doing art for Castlevania. So you have a Castlevania Soren. There will be, a, unlike the Amanos, which were only found in Japanese War of the Spark boxes and pre-release kits, these will be printed in all languages. So presumably the real chase is to pull a foil Kojima Soren out of a Japanese CB, which makes me glad that we arranged that group by. <laughs> um, but I have a feeling that this is going to behave not so much like an Amano, but actually more like the Godzilla cards out of Ikoria, where the top two or three of them are going to be worth solid money in both English and Japanese, but even more in Japanese. So I don't, I don't think it's the next Amano. I think it's the next Ghidorah, where I think Japanese version of Ghidorah right now is 200 bucks, I believe, on TCG Player. Let me just double check that. Ghidorah, King of the Cosmos, who is basically the alternate version of Aluna, Apex of Wishes. Foils of the card in English are... 60. God, there's so many versions of this card. 60 bucks. And Japanese is, I think, 200. Yeah, 200 with six listings. So I suspect that's the kind of thing that's going to happen with Soren, where English copies could easily end up in, I think I told Pro Traders, the 50 to $80 range would probably be the reasonable floor. And the Japanese copies might get down to, I don't know, 100 or something, and then pump up to 200 plus. But... It's hard to say. It really depends on how Harayuya and the few other big vendors in Japan price these out the gate. If Harayuya says it's a $1,000 card on day one, then it's going to be a $1,000 card. Because mm -hmm. backsliding off those is, very, is, is pretty rare. So we need to see how Harayuya chooses to price it. Um, I'll tell you this much. They are going to be pretty rare. If you go back to something like Phyrexian Vorinclex, you could, out of a collector booster box for Kale Time, pull the pack foil Vorinclex, Monstrous Raider, or you could pull the showcase version, which was him like tearing something apart, or you could pull the Phyrexian language version. And so a Vorinclex dropping gave you a, I think in the in that particular slot, gave you a one in three chance of, of pulling a fancy, the Phyrexian Vorinclex. So that makes it, you know, whatever. I can't remember if it was two times or three times more rare than a FE, FEA mythic that only had a single premium treatment. With the Soren, with the four potential versions, you are 
in in that particular slot in the CBs, I'm just trying to see if it, it can include pack foils. That slot is foil Dracula showcase borderless or extended art main set rare or mythic. So Dracula showcase borderless, and then there's a separate slot for foil rare or mythic. So yeah, so it should be a. I think with with Vorinclex, it was a. Uh, it was twice as rare as an FEA mythic, and with uh, Soren, it will be three times as rare. So that's pretty significant because that's going to be a pretty tough uh, premium to pull, and it's tougher to pull than Ghidorah was in the Ikoria uh, CBs for sure. So argument could be made that this Soren is indeed a thousand dollar plus card and maybe the English copies you know under a hundred bucks will be too cheap for sure in the long run. I went ahead and bought a hedge copy at Star City had them at $149.99 on pre-order and with the discount over there I got it for $135 all in. I suspect that's a mistake in the sense that it'll end up dollar cost averaging lower but after my experiences with Amanos and other similar trinkets i do not want to be caught flat-footed if this thing goes to a thousand out of the gates yeah. <laughs> i'm much more willing to lose 50 and tell people up front that i probably will that i am to miss getting in on something at 150 that goes to a thousand yeah and we're we're talking about here specifically the essentially castlevania art yeah japanese language foil yeah well, I think the English ones will do well too, but I think the Japanese ones will carry a special premium. Okay. Because again, as with the Godzilla, the cultural impetus to chase the card is mostly rooted in Japan. Certainly in the gaming culture in North America, and given how uh, prevalent anime culture had, has become in North America over the last 15 years, I think there's a much bigger contingent now in North America. So this card may well do very well here as well as well but having spent some time in japan i can tell you that whatever fan level you think you are in north america you're not japanese level so i suspect the premium will still be on the japanese copy yeah i mean no one buys this because they anyone buying that card does not care that they can't read it no that's not what it's about (laughs) and they might actually be able to read the japanese copy given how much money they're spending on this card now not the least reason of which is that the japanese version is like five times more rare if you assume that the japanese print run is something like 20 to 30 percent of english then it's not three times more rare than the your average foil premium mythic it's like 12 to 15 times more rare in terms of total copies in the world to be absorbed now how much more ni- how much more niche is the market for it well more but Jap- japan is the second biggest magic market so not that much less um and and presumably in sync with um the print run like if the print runs are whatever it is 30% of english that's because that's the the amount of the market that Jap- Japan represents. If you have any card printed in Japanese that attracts attention from outside of Japan, as we saw with the Foil Mystical Archive Time Warp after Haryu decided that was a $1,000 card, then North Americans are going to start chasing it, right? Like they're going to crack these boxes going for these things. So I, I'm very suspicious that this is where we're headed with this Soren. And if it just falls flat and nobody cares and it's not worth anything, I'll be very surprised. 
Hmm. Yeah, I I don't I, I don't think it'll be valueless at all. Um, I know it, 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 it kind of depends on where the numbers land, but it does seem like it will have some amount of popularity. I, I do not think it will be a mono popularity. And I'm not even talking about price point, just popularity. I don't think it's going to be in the same place. Um, well, you know, Final Fantasy holds a real special place in a lot of nerds' hearts. The funny thing about Soren is this is a totally playable planeswalker. Like, and you're playing this in your drag, your vampire deck all day. It's plus one draw card, like ba- plus one to dark confidant yourself. Minus two to make a flying lifelink 2-3 vampire that protects Soren. And then the minus seven is deal 13, gain 13. Totally solid mid-range planeswalker that you'll throw in your vampire deck. Yeah, he's not terrible. I mean, he's more playable than a lot of other cards have been. Um... So one of the things that also makes this version, or leads me to believe this version will be popular, is the other two versions, the borderless and the, the pack foil, are bad art. Like, pretty bad. Uh, so this is Soren the Mirthless. Yeah, I mean, if it, is this is a card I'm thinking of. Hold on, let me. Yeah, so I saw you guys talking about this. Do you know why the Count Dracula version of this is that art? Oh yeah, that's the fourth version, the Dracula version. Thank you. That uh, you you looked at it and you were complaining that he has a man bun. Uh, wait, which? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's not. Not that I'm complaining that he has a man bun. I, this is not how... I, if I'm like, okay, which card is Dracula out of our... Because here's the thing. Dracula IP rank characters in terms of cool. Dracula. Then way down below that, you have the hunter of Dracula. What's his name? Renfrew? No. Uh, I don't know. Van Helsing? Sure. Is Van Helsing actually in the book? Oh, I don't know. I don't even know. See, that's the thing. It's Dracula, then any other character way below, and I don't, I don't care what order you put them in because none of them matter. And they figured that out along the way here because they made multiple cards Dracula. <laughs> because, of course you did. It's like Godzilla. Like th- th- so, so few people know any of the other characters that you're going to have a real bad time trying to get people excited about. Like, you've got Olivia Crimson Bride, and they had to represent her as the Sisters of the Undead. Did those characters mean anything to anyone? No, not really. And there's a box topper called Castle Dracula. Or sorry, a buy a box card, Castle Dracula, um, which is the Voldaren Estate card. Yeah, that's fine. But really the only cards anybody's going to be excited to table are going to be the Dracula versions. And the one with the that's kind of like a beautiful painting, don't get me wrong, but it's not a scary weird enough version of Soren, like of Dracula to make it worth wanting this version. So you've got man bun Dracula or super lame pack foil Soren, which just looks like a bad, like vampire, the masquerade cosplayer drinking some grape juice out of his crystal goblet. And then the borderless art is super uninspired as well, which makes the Kojima art jump out as like such a clear winner out of the four versions. Um, so I have, I have two points. One, the reason, and I don't, I did not figure this out for myself. I just happened to notice, uh, our buddy Ristic studies comment on this, but that count Dracula art for Soren is the artist. He just drew himself as Dracula. 
Well, <laughs> good for you. It's not <laughs> just, I mean, that, that's sometimes that kind of ego works out perfectly because you end up being the perfect model for the subject. In this case, that's not the case. So uh, the second point I'm going to make here is that, well, I understand why you are saying he doesn't look like Dracula to you. I will highlight that that is a belief that I am sure is shared by many of our listeners and magic players in general, but certainly a, uh, you know, a white Eurocentric perspective. Uh, no, 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 you, you, because... you, get, you get me wrong. I'm not saying he's the wrong race, like Jesus is white. I'm saying that this doesn't look cool enough. He's just standing there and there's three bats. Like it's, if you compare it to the one below it on the Crimson Vow uh, collecting page, they made a different one for Voldaren Blood, Bloodcaster, Dracula Lord of Blood. That one has Dracula up in the air with his crazy cape and a bunch of red candles radiating near some stained glass. Much cooler. Like if you're going to table Dracula, you want to table some intimidating shit and that ain't it. Well, I find... No, you know, no weapon for, in his hand, no blood in the picture, nothing dead. He's not killing anybody or attacking anybody. He's not even menacing. Yeah, I mean, I find... I mean, well, first of all, the Dracula you're referencing is still much more of the... that seems to be a more white Eurocentric design than the other one. I, I do think that the... I, if I have to look at these, I actually like the artist one the most. I like the starkness of it. I don't think of Dracula as Dracula is not an Avengers character. He doesn't need. I don't think of him as needing excitement and boldness in the artwork. I almost want him to be a more elegant, refined, understated piece of art. But that's very personal. And I totally understand that. If you're a, if you're uh, asking me which of these pieces of art I would hang on the wall, it's a, it's the it's the Dracula one. It, it, well, it's the highest I'm, quality. I'm not hanging any of this on a wall. Sure, but this is the highest quality art. I'm agreeing with that. But it's not the best representation of the character in the modern parlance. Because I think a lot of people are getting hung up on Dracula the book. You we're so far past that. The vast majority of representations of this character in popular culture, especially for the 20, the 18 to 34 year old current market is has nothing to do with the original victorian vibe of the book and they clearly went the victorian way but i think it's a mistake for this brand addressing this market there are certainly people that are going to appreciate that if they feel like they have a connection to their original experience reading the book but frankly i've read the book at least twice and it's not that great a book and doesn't really deserve the reverence of say a dune where i would might be more Ugh. i might be more uppity about when they do the dune cards <laughs> in terms of how they yeah. represent them I the, so I mean you could say that you don't think Dracula connects on the Victorian sort of aristocratic aesthetic. Let me clarify. But, I'm saying that most people's understanding of Dracula in popular culture is not derived from reading the book. Okay, that's fine, and I completely would agree with you. I w I'm I'm going to make the point that the. Koji the, I'm going to say the Kojima artwork, the, the Castlevania artwork is still that aesthetic though. I mean, he's not a ramp, you know, a, a essentially a monster. He's a 
fair featured uh high cheekbone frilly shirt wearing like he's still very much in that space so i mean at least partially wizards wizards it seems like mostly across the board has acknowledged that dracula has always been a or is still a elegant villain um the lord of blood card dracula lord of blood appears to be the furthest a field in terms of style Keep keep in mind that you referencing the the Kojima art is irrelevant. That's not a depiction of Dracula. That's a depiction of Soren, and it's done in a Castlevania style by a Castlevania artist, which is why it's going to be worth money. Doesn't, of course, it's this like that's this is the look because that's what she does. <laughs> so yeah, but so but but Soren Soren is magic's Dracula. Uh, okay, I mean this, this is a separate, separate, separate <laughs> conversation. But I'm not, I'm not arguing that this art by Kojima is the desired representation of Dracula. I'm saying it's Kojima, so it's going to be worth money. Like she's just a known artist in the video game space, so the massive video game population will support this card. That's it. It's like it, it's, it's the, yeah, it's, that's the Konami supporters in Japan that are going to drive this to a thousand dollars if that's what happens. Oh yeah, yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing with that. The point that's a hundred percent different from the point I was making. The point I was making was if you want to talk about the standard cultural depiction of Dracula, that you know that sore in the, that Konami sore in the Mirthless art, which is very much supposed to evoke Dracula vibes, is still that elegant, finely featured aristocrat appearance, as opposed to uh dracula lord of blood which is definitely a little further away from that with the very dramatic dr strange-esque pauldrons and collar um and you know stronger highlights and a a, a bulkier armored frame but we are way off in the weeds at this point for what it's worth i just wanted to point out that that artwork on count dracula is the artist (laughs) which i thought was funny and i do like the art personally it is funny so what cards from the set have jumped out at you no, none of them. No, really. I mean, so I mean, you want to talk about what's jumped out at me? Like, all right. Like I said, when I went looking for, so hold on, when I went looking for picks, based on what we've seen so far, I was came up empty-handed. If you want to talk about what cards are going to be from the set, are going to be good. It's a little different. I think my my front runner at the moment in the set is Blood Vile Purveyor. The uh, Day Zero Errata card. He's the four mana, five, six vampire with flying trample. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, they get a blood token. And when he attacks, he gets one O for each blood token the defending player controls. So you have here a four mana, five, six flying trample. And anyone who played during Return to Ravnica remembers Desecration Demon, which was a four mana, six, six fly non-trample i believe right and uh you could sacrifice a creature to tap him uh before your opponent attacked so your opponent would you know keep him at bay by sacrificing their own creatures to tap desecration demon but eventually he would become you'd run out of creatures and he would overrun overrun you so this card very much reminds me of desecration demon who was a house in that format uh he's big he flies he deals damage you can't stop him like you could desecration demon he has one less power but he has trample uh the downside of your opponent getting a blood token every time they cast a spell that's a big part of the card and it's that's 
I, I don't have a beat on how important that is. And I'm, I'm not willing to listen to anyone who says they have a great feel for this yet. Uh, Blood Token, when I for, as an aside, when I read Blood Token, I didn't think very highly of it. I saw, saw it referenced as imagine your opponent's cards just have uh, cycle one on them, which makes it sound a, a lot better of a token, right? Like if it just says all of the cards in your hand have cycle one. Sure. Now, you only get to do it once. You don't get to cycle your whole hand. Uh, but that that is a potent effect. But is it enough to offset this? I don't know. And the fact that if they don't use them right away, they're getting it's only increasing his strength. I don't know. Now, if we go back to the Dark Creation Demon era in Return the Ravnica, you also had Grey Merchant, you had Thoughtseize, you had Pack Rat, uh, you had the three mana one, the Exiled Green and White cards from your opponent's hand, Lifebane Zombie, I think. So there was a lot of potency in that color back in the day. <clears throat> So that could have been part of it too. Standard metagames are always really tough. You know, something like Desecration Demon could be amazing in that standard format and garbage in others. It all depends. So I don't know where this is going to land, but he's on my short list of cards that I could legitimately see buying copies of because of his use, like buying non-foil pack copies of this because of his usefulness in standard, because he could go from... 45 cents or 60 cents to like six bucks if it turns out he's actually a tier one creature you're talking about purveyor yeah blood vial purveyor if it was a mythic i'm much more interested in in it as a standard spec as a rare i'm willing to bet only one deck ends up running it and i say there's a 50 50 chance that deck falls out of the format the if it turns out that giving away the blood tokens is too much value being given to the opponent in exchange for them frequently being able to kill him with the kill spells that are prevalent in this format the if if it turns out that he can't easily be killed by the the other major archetypes in the format where they have to kind of find one of four cards in their deck that can handle him then sure one of the things that's nice about a 5-6 body in the air with Trample is that it shuts down all the dragons in the format that are tend to be 4-4 four, four bodies. Mm-hmm. So there's that. It, he he blo- attacks and blocks very well. I, I, I say that it's a coin flip so far until we see some lists from pros as to whether this is going to get played. As a rare, I'm not super excited about it. A foil extended art version of this as a spec leading into the next time we come back to Innistrad? Probably. It's yeah, it's again, I am very much unclear. I, I, I see him as a potential card. I'm not saying he's gonna be it. I'm saying this is the type of card that could end up very potent and standard. Um, but a lot of things have to break in a specific way for that to happen. So I'm I'm doing nothing with it. I'm gonna wait and see how things shake out, but I could see going in for a block of them if it seems like he's uh that deck is shaping up to be a, a format staple. So far, most of what I've seen out of this set is a bunch of cards, rares and mythics that look like they're brickable for EDH for the mid to long term. One example is Geralf or Geralf, uh, Visionary Stitcher, two and a blue for a human wizard, always good tribes. Uh, one four, that's solid stats. Zombies you control have flying. This is an instant include in Wilhelt. Uh, and then blue tap sack another non-token creature, create an XX blue zombie creature token where the X is the sacrifice creature's toughness. So some zombie of yours, uh, non-token zombie of yours is going to die. You're going to turn it into a token to replace it. 
this makes every will help deck from here to eternity. So whatever foil extended arts of this get down to, I'm in. Whenever we see bricks of this down or super, super cheap, I'm going to get 50 or 100 copies because they're going to buy list to CK very well in 18 months. Mm, he is he's a cool card. I like him. Um, and the alternate version of him is particularly nifty looking. I, I do like those. So I can see Drolf working well um you know buying bricks of them i would think you know if we're talking about him the other one that uh that we should mention is necro duality oh yeah which is certainly uh a card that's going to be popular this is the one that doubles your zombies so it's a four mana blue enchantment and a mythic this time thought it was interesting this was mythic which is whenever a non-token zombie enters the battlefield under your control, you create a to- token of it. I actually went looking for infinite, for not infinite combos necessarily, maybe, but combos with this. Uh, the best I found was using the guy from AFR, who's a three mono legendary zombie that uh, you enter the dungeon when he comes into play, and if you haven't completed the dungeon, you bounce him to your hand. Akarak or something. So, yeah, so you play him, you get another token of him, the token dies, you return him to your hand, and you just went through the, the dungeon twice. So it's like, oh, that's kind of nifty. Um, I don't think that's enough to make him move in price, though. But Necro Duality is a, it will be a very popular guard, and almost seems like your best bet's probably going to be just to pack copies. Like, finding these overseas somewhere and trying to get those for two or three bucks and buying I, I think as many I think it's the same, exactly the same story as the other card we just looked at. It's going to be foil extended arts for like raw dollar value. And then for percentage based appreciation via buy list, it's going to be the regular copies. And what you're hoping yeah. for here is that blue black zombies are utterly irrelevant in standard and that this shit gets really cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no chance necro duality is good in standard, right? There's a whole, there's a whole, well, I don't know. I haven't seen, we haven't seen the whole set yet. And they're certainly pushing zombies pretty hard here. Like Graf Reaver is another one of the ones that looks brickable. One in a black for a three, three zombie warrior with exploit. Whenever this creature enters the battlefield, you may sack a creature. When Graf Reaver exploits a creature, destroy target planeswalker. Well, that's one of those little utility nuggets that you want in your real help deck because a lot of your shit can't do that. Like you're going to have, uh, What's that Throne of Eldraine knight? Is that one a zombie? Murderous Rider? Is Murderous Rider a zombie? Mm, I think so. Murderous Rider is a zombie knight. Yep, perfect. So you're going to have Murderous Rider and you're going to have Graf Reaver to handle Planeswalkers in your zombie deck. And that seems fine. Wait, is Throne of Eldraine... Wait, Throne of Eldraine... Are you talking about Standard? Or modern. I'm, I'm talking about EDH. All these things for oh, e- for, for bricks. Oh. But you were you were talking about whether blue black zombies could possibly be relevant in standard. Graph Reaver is one of the cards that makes that so because it's a three three for three for two. Yeah, but the, okay. Can destroy so you're walkers. you're absolutely you're absolutely correct. They may make some form of zombies a competitive standard deck. That deck I don't think will play Necro Duality. Probably correct. So. <laughs> uh, Graph Reaver, definitely on my list. Headless Rider, even. Two and a black for 3-1. Whatever it or another non-token zombie you control dies, create a 2-2 black zombie creature token. There's like five or ten cards 
printed in the last three months that give you extra zombies when shit die. Like yeah. from in the janky deck I run, white black deck I run on Arena, I run Ghoulish Procession, which is anytime a uh, non-token creature dies for the first time each turn, you get a 2-2 zombie. And there's a whole bunch of cards like that in along this theme that are all just going to be auto-includes in the zombie deck. It's going to be all about like sacking zombies for value, and you get more zombies to continue that going on like that. Um, even Overcharged Amalgam. 3-3 three, three, Flash Flying Exploit Zombie Horror. 2 and 2 blue. Whenever exploits a creature, counter target spell, activated ability, or triggered ability. Auto-include and will health could be playable in standard. That's a very strong standard card. 3-3 three, three, Flash Flying seems pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, I like Overcharge Amalgam more in standard than I think I do in EDH. I mean, he'll be fine in EDH, but this is basically... Uh... Uh, Mystic Snake, a better Mystic Snake, essentially, which was certainly had its day in the sun. It's been a while, but it's it's in that realm, and you can make this do some work for you for sure if that if that ends up panning out. Yeah, I see lots and lots of zombie related stuff from this fall that's going to make money over time. The uh, one of the other things that that jumped out at me is that Halana and Elena partners uh, is likely to be popular. Uh, culturally, it's going to be popular because this is presumably a lesbian duet. Um, it's a two, three first strike reach at the beginning of combat on your turn, put X plus one plus one counters on another target creature you control where X is their power. That creature gains haste until end of turn. That's a pretty cool uh, Xenagos analog that you can pretty easily build around. There's just so many ways to make this do work for you. So I just, I, I, I think this card is terrible. Like, like mechanically, it is unfortunate. And uh, but I, I don't because it's this card's power, which is usually going to be like two or three. Well, yeah, but that's the whole thing. You build this deck with bone splitters and shit, so it's always making things big. Yeah, but you have to do a lot of work and for this to not do that much is my problem with it from a functional perspective. Yeah, but you put it on a bunch of other things that also tr like trigger off their power where they draw cards based on power. You play all the green things that when something for or greater power is in play, you get benefits. This, this deck is real. It's just, I don't know if I'm like, it's not really the kind of style of deck I I would build, but I can see lots of people building it. And I suspect it's not going to be the top commander out of the set, but I bet you it's in the top three. I I, I would put this in the bottom three. <laughs> I don't know about bottom three. There's a lot of legendary creatures in here, but I don't think this, this is going to see any play at all. Oh, It'll be okay. nowhere near top three. Well, we'll check back in on that in eight weeks or so. Yeah. Uh, Olivia Crimson Bride is, of course, the you know centerpiece of the narrative here. And Olivia is a... 3-4 Flying Haste for 4 Black Red. Whenever Olivia Crimson Bride attacks, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield tapped and attacking. It gains when you don't control a legendary vampire, exile this creature. I suspect that Olivia is fairly similar to Kalia, and I don't think I would run, build my vampire deck around Olivia, but you certainly could. You can also just put her in your Kalia deck. Um, you can put her in your Edgar Markov deck in the 99. 
It's a mythic. It's a major character. She's in a wedding dress looking magnificent. This card is going to make money over time. This has like, gives me um, legendary dinosaurs out of Ixalan vibes. Like give this 18 months and they're just, whatever they get down to from not getting played in standard, they're 18 months or two years later, they're going to be double or triple that. Yeah, this could theoretically show up in standard. Um, the, again, the removal suite is going to matter. It's six mana. That's the trouble. It's six mana, but you're reanimating a creature from your graveyard attacking. Not just You're not even just reanimating, it's attacking too. So and, and it doesn't go away at the end of turn unless they kill her. Yeah, so I mean, and you can play another legendary vampire, but yeah, yeah, whatever. Those are semi corner cases. Like, you're, you're, the concern is, can I get this down faster than turn six? Uh, how much work did I have to do to put something in my graveyard? What did I put in my graveyard? And how likely is Olivia to die before I pull this off? And those are all valid questions, but you could get some potentially real nasty creatures into play with her, maybe on turn four or five. You know, depending on what the enablers look like. And if they don't have an answer right away, that could be game over. Um, so, I, I again, this is not a, I think she's going to be a, a home run standard. It's an observation that I can see how you could build that deck. And, you know, we might see that come together. It will depend on several moving pieces. In, in a similar vein, you have like Dollhouse of Horrors, which is a five-bond artifact. You exile, and it's, this is kind of like uh, God Pharaoh's Gift. Um, but it's a five mana artifact and then you pay one. So you're probably just paying six right all up front, but you exile a car creature from your graveyard and you get a token of that card. Uh, but it's a zero, zero artifact with a one, one counter on it. So, I mean, you're, you're whatever you exile this coming in as a, a one, one artifact, but like you can dollhouse of horrors, activate it exile the olivia in your graveyard which comes in as a one one which now attacks and brings back a, the other creature that's in your graveyard who is not a one one it is its full power um so you know that gives you some more ways to kind of set that up again it uh, kind of asks the question of what is in your graveyard is it is that dollhouse mythic or rare rare yeah at mythic it would have been pretty interesting because it's it's one of those open-ended synergy cards that can fit into so many different decks yeah, it seems like there's a pretty good chance that's going to make... There's a, the, People are absolutely going to try and make that work in standard. Will it? I don't know, but they're certainly going to make it, make the effort. Speaking of big fat things to put in their graveyard, there's Cultivator Colossus, oh, yeah. which is the, the seven mana XX Trample PT is number of lands you control. And when he enters the battlefield, you can put a land from your hand onto the battlefield tapped. And then if you do, you draw a card and repeat it. So like if you, so he's seven mana though. So if you cast him for seven mana with seven lands in play and somehow still have lands in your hand, you might be able to put two or three lands into play when you put him down. But that seems unlikely. I actually don't think this card is very good. I've seen Jason play Lands Matters, like, landfall-based decks in ADH that would run this because he ends up with a grip of lands in hand from deliberately dedicating slots to generating those land draws. Eh, I, I'm, I'm medium on this card. I'm much more excited in terms of green mythics about Cemetery Prowler. Well, hold on. Let me let me just make a real quick comment as far as uh, Cultivator Colossus goes. Is if this is going to be useful in EDH, it's probably going to be alongside Abundance, right? Which right. is Those kind of effects, 
Yeah, which essentially lets you replace your, when you draw, you can choose to draw a land essentially, which means you can then do, I think your every land in your deck, you can put in the play with the two of those. So Abundance is a curious card to keep an eye on. Uh, although I, th- I think the only foil, oh yeah, the only foil is 10th edition. Those appear to be $65. Uh, I don't know if that's a recent price or not, but probably going to be there regardless. Okay, what green mythic were you going to mention? Cemetery Prowler has the most angles. One double green, three, four wolf. So it's relevant for Tovalar. It's relevant for the werewolf decks in standard. It's a vigilance three, four for three. That's a relevant body. Uh, When it enters the battlefield or attacks, you exile a card from a graveyard. So it's got built-in graveyard hate. And then spells you cast cost one less to cast for each card type they share with cards exiled with Cemetery Prowler. If you put this into play and it gets to swing once, you have either uh, remove... um, You've either removed two creature cards and made all your creatures two less, or you've removed one creature and one instant to make both one less. This is a very solid card. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Obviously pushed quite hard uh, with the intention of being a standard staple. Well, and I, I think like, it's just a, it's an EDH staple because this reduces casting costs in decks that care. Like in Tovalar, it's an automatic and he's one of the top five commanders right now. And it's a mythic. So the and then it just has broad applications in green decks and commander period. Because if you're whatever you're trying to do with that deck, the this can help you do it. It, it yeah, it's basically a three four mana rock. Yeah, I have mixed feelings. See, that's the problem. I have mixed feelings with this in modern. I mean, I can look over oh, no, cloud not, key. Not modern EDH or EDH. I have, a, I, have, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I love this in EDH, right? Because I can look over cloud key, which is a three mana artifact from Future Sight that you choose. It's a three mana artifact. You choose a, a card type, and it's one less. Uh, I mean, obviously, this comparison is going to be drawn to. Um, what the hell is his name? To Cemetery Prowler. Cemetery Prowler. But in EDH, I mean, he's a 3-4 Vigilance. Like, that, none of that really matters in an EDH mm, game for the so most part. I strongly disagree. You play, cloud, okay. you play cloud, cloud Key, and then all the whatever, let's say you called Creature. On all, yeah. all subsequent turns, everything's discounted by one. Cool. Good for you. Yeah. But this, for the same mana cost, is giving you a 3-4 Vigilance that almost always a 3-4 can get in on somebody. You get, you get, I mean, you, on turn three, on, but after oh, no, that, on, on any turn, because people swing and they leave themselves open, or or they get what? their their thing that they thought they were going to block with gets killed by the other guy that they who, who was attacking into them. I can't remember a game I played recently where I didn't have a valid attack if I wanted to make it, and especially since this I, guy is vigilance based, you can run him into something where they're going to bounce off each other, something else where the power is lower than the toughness that wouldn't kill him. And you just got to get, you want to get that attack trigger off. And the thing with him is he'll, even if he died on his first attack. Oh, I guess you, you need to keep him in play. So that's not true. I was going to say that you, you have the ability, but it's not some emblem that you grant. You have to keep him in play, but he's just not threatening yeah. enough that anybody's going to kill him until it looks like you're comboing off. So I think, I mean, I don't think any, no one's going to target him for the most part yeah. unless you somehow get him to like six, but he will die in board wipes. Oh yeah, um, but that's true. You which cloud key. Well, but I mean, as a, you know, if I'm comparing him to something like cloud key, cloud key is only going to die when somebody wipes all the artifacts, which I think it's, it's probably fair to say less common than just rats. 
um, which will hit creatures. So like essentially Cemetery Prowler is going to get caught up more incidentally than Cloud Key will. I, uh, this may be a, a nature of different types of EDH games we played, but I, you know, when I was playing regularly, you could rarely attack with a creature like this because whoever you were attacking probably had some sort of um, rattle that you were attacking into, whether it was a bigger creature or something with death touch or anything like that. It was like, maybe if you got him down on turn three, you could probably start getting in. But, you know, if you played him on turn six or seven, you were almost always staring down something unpleasant that was going to result in his death. Uh, so you just end up sitting on him. That that would have been what I'm sh- I would have encountered. But again, that could, those could just be the types of different games we play. So it's not right or well, wrong. It's, it's also just... small sample size in both cases. Like there's yes, EDH yeah, games yeah. are infinite opportunities, and anything can be true at any given time. The I mean, it's cute to give him indestructible or make him unblockable. But if I'm thinking about this from a spec perspective, here's what I'm looking to happen. It ends up being cheap on Star City or something on pre-order. <clears throat> they put it up at five bucks. Then it ends up as a four of in a standard deck, and it's seeing modest EDH play, and it ends up being a fifteen dollar mythic for a while. Yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think that sounds about right. Is your hope is that he doesn't land? He drops to three or four bucks. You snag some copies, and then people put together a deck and standard that doesn't exist today, so that he becomes useful. Well, the thing is, in in current standard. He might just go right, snap right in as a four of in the wolf deck. So like, there's already a werewolf deck. So mm. and he's a wolf, and and the the werewolves care about wolves in some cases. So he yeah. may just snap right in. But the question is, what he's going to be priced at? If if he's started at twenty, forget it. Like, <laughs> then I'm waiting to see what EDH rack numbers look at on it. There's no way I'm gonna. I wouldn't be like, oh, get these at twenty because they'll be forty one day. Uh, I'll yeah. let let the market lead me on that. The, he's he looks like he's twenty now. I mean, obviously, with super early, but that's that's where he is today. I'll tell you what I do like. I do like Henrika Domnathy for the long term. She she should get nice and low. Uh, her Dracula art is some of the best uh, available, uh, and far better than the pack art. Uh, this is a one three flying vampire for four. At the beginning of combat on your turn, choose one that hasn't been chosen. Each player sacrifices a creature. Very nice in EDH. You draw a card and lose a life. Totally fine in EDH. And then you transform her. Once you transform her, she's Henrika Infernal Seer. And she's flying death touch lifelink. Nice rattlesnake in her own right. One double black. Each creature you control with flying death touch and or lifelink gets plus one plus zero till end of turn. So she's going to go in every vampire deck from here to eternity, but she just fits into black decks generally. And I don't think she's really a standard card, but that vampire, that Dracula art is likely to be quite popular because it's very amusing. Like the girl's the yeah. girl's holding a dog and it turns into a vampire dog. That's funny because I don't know why a vampire EDH deck would play this. It... It's not awful. It just vampires in particular, I think, are glutted, right? They just have so many options at this point that this is a fine card, but it doesn't seem to do anything spectacular. Uh, I mean, the transform side, like, again, a 3-4 flying death touch lifelink is like, yeah, okay. I don't, like, great. My opponent's Hornet Queen or Hornet Queen token is just going to kill this if I get one attack. Uh, and I don't see the the trigger as being especially relevant. Three mana for one O is a waste in 
EDH. I think if this card is going to be useful, again, it's probably for me, it's standard. I, I, I don't see it being a big deal in EDH. Wow, we we really see EDH differently. The, the vast majority of EDH games I play in, people table mid-range after mid-range after mid-range deck that are themed. Like, people aren't building Will Help to Kill You on turn four. They're building it so they're going to cast zo- the zombies and do zombie tribal shit for seven turns in a row. And this this yeah, is I... a completely fine turn three play. Uh, Soul Ring, two, two black on turn three, and I'm casting Henrika, and then every one of the turn loses their first creature. That's completely fine. This it's funny because that sounds to me more aggressive than the games I used to play, which tended to be a bunch of dirtling around for like five or six turns. And then you end up with kind of glutted boards and people trying to figure out how to make a profitable attack. Um, and stuff like this would just get dwarfed because no one was making, a, there wasn't enough happening where these cards could have been relevant. And then they just kind of got overshadowed by, you know, shale drids and stuff like that. Um, and there just wasn't really room for them. I, I can believe that the band of possibility here is somewhere between modest play and moderate play. In EDH. Yeah, I'll be curious. I'll be kind of curious to see where this stuff lands. Um, this ne- I'll tell you, if we have a choice between the, this next one and Henrika, or Henrika, in terms of mythic black options, pretty clearly you go with Toxril the Corrosive, assuming they were the same price, which they won't be. Uh, Five double black for a 7-7 Slug Horror. At the beginning of each end step, put a slime counter on each creature you don't control. Creatures you don't control get minus one, minus one for each slime counter on them. And whenever a creature you don't control with a slime counter on it dies, create a 1-1 black Slug Creature token. Blue black, sacrifice a Slug, draw a card. That's got like massacre worm vibes going on. Yeah. Um, so I just one last point before we leave Henrika entirely, but it's gonna be funny in like um, two months when Henrika's in like four thousand decks, and you're like, "See, this is really popular." And I'm gonna be like, four thousand isn't that popular," and we're gonna look at it at the same number and have different opinions. About well, what okay, it means. but you'd be you'd, if that was the case, you'd be wrong because four thousand after three months is excellent. That's like tip top if you look at any of the sets from the year that are three months three to four months old that's as high as it can be the point i was making is that we will the the number will appear and we will read it differently um well but as for i here's the thing there's no way it gets played anywhere but edh and people only need one copy so the only henrikas i'm likely to go after are going to be those foil borderless dracula ones if they get real cheap and they seem to be hollowing out Okay, so I, I I don't mean to to hammer this too much, but I this seems like a legitimate standard card. Again, I'm not like trying to push people into standard specs at all. I'm saying of of all of the formats where I could see the scene the most play, it is standard because this is actually quite potent in standard. I think that's where if this was going to be an angle, that would be it for me. I mean, she trades with the dragons and trades with the other big vampire, but. I mean, you play on turn four. You play this on turn four pre-combat. Go to combat, and they sacrifice a creature. Then you know you've you've already worsened their board as the rest of your team attacks. And then the next turn, if you can either draw, you can draw the card if you want, but you can skip it. You don't have to do all three. So you can jump straight into the transform. And now on turn, now on turn, I guess five, you have your three four flying death touch lifelink, which is. Useful. Possible. I, I don't see a deck shell in the for- current format that would run this, but I, it yeah, could be wrong. I, 
I, I whenever I talk about standard, I, I really mostly talk about these cards in a vacuum because yeah. you, you just I just don't know. So anyway, talk talks real the corrosive seven seven slug horror. Yeah, he's really cool. I don't like him being seven mana. Yeah, that's yeah, I agree. At five mana, that's a bummer. At five mana, and you could make him smaller. I'd be much more into it. Yeah, if he was a five mana four four, this is so much more of an interesting commander. But at seven, it takes so long to get there. And then if you have to recast him, like uh, not not even as a commander, like I like, I just think he's a ninety nine card that's going to see play, but but probably yeah. moderate play, like modest to moderate. Yeah, I mean his his ability is kind of nifty here. The sacrifice of slug is real, really unlikely to come into play very often. But the yeah, just the minus one minus one counters are fun. The clone they showed us today is probably the best clone we've seen in a while. Uh, Mirror Hall Mimic. It's a four cost and cost copy of any creature on the battlefield. So keep in mind that clones are often limited to only copy your stuff or only certain kinds of things. This can copy any creature on the battlefield, and it, except that it's a spirit. Once they deal with that, you can disturb cast it out of your graveyard for five, and you basically get fractured identity. You get enchant creature at the beginning of your upkeep, create a token that's a copy of enchanted creature, except it's a spirit in addition to its other types. That's pretty good. It's solid. Uh, mimics, uh, I, like if I'm just playing a vanilla mimic, I think I want to pay two to three for it. I think three is kind of the going cost for the most part. Four is a little on the high side. You really have to be in a spirit deck to for that to be worth the four and for the disturb ability to be useful to you and somehow, but, but the flip side of that is interesting. It's a, you can, you can play the, if the, if the mimic dies, you can cast it from your graveyard for five and it enchants a creature. And then at the beginning of your upkeep, you create a token of the enchanted creature, except it's a spirit as well. So, you know, if you could, that can potentially get, get out of control if you're gonna play this card it's because you want access to the backside i think i think i said fractured identity but that's not the card i'm thinking of what's the set is it a seven casting cost blue enchantment or something reflect shattered something reflection reflect what did what no, did you is say it, is it i a, don't remember is it a, i said fractured identity but that's wrong it's a five casting cost infinite blue ref- enchantment infinite reflection that's not no that's not what you want it's a similar, it's a semi-similar card, but I don't know quite what you're looking for. There's a blue spell that that does that every turn. It makes the I've got it in Maltratha, I think. It, that makes oh, it makes a copy, makes a copy of it, the same creature turn after turn after turn if they don't kill it. It's a simic, it's a simic card from the Return of the Ravnica block. I think might have been Dragon's Maze. Anyway, card being able to get. It's just a normal clone the first time, but that backside as as upside for mid rangey EDH decks is totally. Is it's just it's not that this card is amazing. I'm looking for cards that the maximum number of decks can play. You don't need to have this in a spirit deck. That doesn't matter if it's in a spirit deck. There, there's upside, but this just goes in blue decks. You can just put this in, and it'll copy the best creature on the table, and they've got to deal with that. And if they ever deal with it. You just bring it back for five and put it on the other best creature in the table at the time and just start making copies of it. That's going to be pretty solid. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no shortage of mimics out there at this point. So 
he it does have competition, but I agree that the flip side of it, you know, the disturbability is valuable. Um, well, because because you don't your average clone is a one for one. This this is a potentially one for ten. Like it, the upside here is so much right. higher. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you put your ghastly mimicry, the flip side of this of uh, Mirhal mimic on, you know. Pro, not, not primeval titan because he's banned but whatever you know the corollary Something is nasty. now yeah it, that damn creature's getting shot real fast like like if anyone well, has the ability to answer it they're doing it right away so it's one of these cards where you kind of have to like oh, i have to pick a creature yeah but yeah but here, people here's a, it's good but people won't kill right away it's true that politic political angle that definitely exists but keep in mind whatever you're copying if they could deal with it they already would have like, if your argument is they've got a point removal spell and they're holding it for you to bring that out of the graveyard, they would have used it on the thing you're going to target. So, <sighs> so not really. Like, so, sometimes. Some, it's sometimes. It's like, okay, you played your Eternal Witness. That's fine. You got the value out of it. But now Travis is getting an Eternal Witness every turn for free. That's too much. Um... I, I the one of the other cards that, that I caught was Curse of Hospitality. Yeah, I like that one. This is this is a three mana red curse. Um, the enchanted player has the whenever creatures attack them, they get trample. So every every creature that attacks your opponent gets trample. And whenever a creature deals combat damage to that player, they exile the top card of their library. And it's whenever a creature does combat damage to so the player getting hit has to exile the top card of your library and then the person who attacked gets to play that card so for three mana you curse your opponent everyone who attacks them gets trample and the victim has to exile cards from the top of their library when they take damage and everyone else gets to cast them uh or rather that turn the person with the creatures this is kind of a very difficult card to explain succinctly uh, in this fashion so that whenever they get hit the other people get to cast spells yeah 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 Roughly so, but this does strike me as going to be good, definitely going to be good in EDH uh, and maybe standard, but def- definitely an EDH type of card. I, I I don't think this is quite Jessica's will, but if Jessica's will is a nine, this might be a seven, six or a seven. Yeah, this this has strong political angles. No, most of the table doesn't want to get rid of it except the person that got cursed. Uh, all the rest of you want to protect it because it's helping you out. And presumably you're playing it in decks that can really take advantage of it. So, and the art's sick. The foil extended art of that's going to look fantastic. Yeah, it is a uh, distinct artwork. Yep. So I can see that being like a mid-tier EDH staple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, Jessica's Will is a card I had in my head. I don't think it's quite that strong, but it is definitely in that vain to me i said vain because we're talking about vampires <laughs> um, uh for standard cemetery protectors cemetery protectors bad right cemetery protector what's that one do? doesn't strike me as this is a four mana three four flash when it enters the battlefield exile a card from a graveyard and then whenever you play land or cast a spell, if it shares a card type, you get a... Yeah, no, maybe that's better than I thought it was. You get a token when you make it. I think I read this as slightly different. It's fine. I don't, But I don't think that's an EDH card at all. This is pure standard play. But if it is good and standard, it might be a four of. And four of mythics can be quite tempting. 
Have you have a cemetery protector? Have you spotted anything here you think is going to see modern play? No, which is what that and that's what I was saying. Like I was looking for stuff that seemed like oh, what kind of one two combos are out there in modern, and I didn't see anything, which was the bummer. I guess the voice of the blessed is going to see some fringe play in modern. Could see play in standard. Could see play in pioneer. That's the new Ajani's Pride Mate up upgrade. It's a 2-2 spirit cleric for two white. Every time you gain a life, you put a counter on it. As long as it's got four or more, it has flying and vigilance. And as long as it has ten or more, it has indestructible. Life gain decks will play this, like, forever. Yes, that Soul card sisters. is actually, yeah, pot- potentially quite potent. Uh, I did notice that. I'm like, oh, and this is when you gain life, not... It's not how much you, life you gain, but if you manage to put together like three or four triggers, some all of a sudden you have like a pretty potent creature for two mana. Hallowed Haunting, this is the enchantment for four. If you have seven enchantments, all of your creatures have flying and vigilance, and you create creature tokens when you cast enchantments. That will show up in EDH enchantment decks for sure. Uh, is basically a type of win condition. Might even show up in Enchantress and Legacy, but I don't know for sure. It'd be the kind of card I'd be looking at if they printed an Enchantment Matters commander in this color that wanted to be attacking with things. This would be the kind of foil extended art you'd want to be looking at, because at that moment it would probably be quite cheap. Yeah, I, I, I don't see... like I can't fathom them printing a card, a, a commander right now, that is interesting enough that like it drains copies of this card. Um, just because I, I just don't think that many people are gonna be like, oh, I have to go build an enchantment deck right now. And like, I need this card. I think it's the better bet will be like, ah, in like four months when the supplies at max, you start picking copies up because it will drain. It's just going to take some time. More of a slow, a slow drainer. What do you think of change of fortune? The wheel variant three and a red sorcery discard your hand, then draw a card for each card you've discarded this turn. So the upside here is that you've managed to cycle a bunch of cards in and out of your hand earlier in the turn, and then you discard your hand and and draw a bunch. Yeah, it's a cool design. I'm sure a lot of people who can't afford Wheel of Fortunes are happy about it. Um, And it's actually pretty silly if you have Wheel of Fortune as well. Because it's each card you've discarded this turn. So if you've already wheeled, it's humongous. (laughs) Sure. Uh, It's nifty. I, I don't know how big is Wheel of Fortune in EDH. Let me take a look. Uh, Knowing that, I mean that pr- it's price prohibitive. Yeah, it is price prohibitive, so it's pretty tricky. And it's it's thirty thousand decks with prohibited with a prohibitive price. God, this is a three hundred and fifty dollar card now. Well, with thirty thousand decks explains that <laughs> hasn't been reprinted how, since nineteen ninety six. How many Wheel of Fortunes have I seen in my oh, life? Geez. My God. Oh yeah, they, they were. You could have bought infinite of them. Thirty thousand of them, <laughs> presumably yeah. at twenty bucks a piece. <laughs> Oh yeah, I remember they were they were like a dollar fifty for so long. I wonder if I have any in my rare box. I might just three hundred fifty dollar bills sitting in my so bulk box. Here, um, here's the thing about blood tokens: there isn't enough here yet to be excited about those tokens in general. But they, there's a greater overarching theme that everybody needs to be on top of. They are going real deep on these utility tokens. They're going to keep doing them. So the cards like Academy Manufacturer that interact with them that are going to see infrequent reprints, they're going to do better than you expect them to do. Because they're just going to have so many synergies. 
Yeah, the blood tokens and to- like every token in general has looked bad. Like clue tokens didn't look good. Food tokens didn't look good. Treasure tokens. Okay, treasure tokens looked good. Investigate. Blood tokens don't look well right right the clue tokens yeah none of these look that good but they all end up being useful so i'm trying to keep that in mind as i'm looking at stuff and creating blood tokens i'm like these aren't good but every other token has been good so these are probably good too the thing is that they're it's not just the utility of the token it's that they print cards that synergize with the token so they print cards that make extra tokens your gold span dragons your um uh magda's your uh, ragavans, your whatevers that make wave sifters, etc. And then they print cards that make use of the token. So for instance, in my grinder arena deck, I run the cat combo with which is the thing that sacks the cat and the cat, you sack the food and the cat comes back. It has, I almost never sack the food token for life. It has nothing to do with what the utility of the token is on its face value. It's about the fact mm-hmm. that the token lets me block with the cat, sack, bring the cat back, drain them for one, do it again and again and again and again. So it's those cards that let you make use of the tokens and multiply the tokens that you want to keep your eyes on because they're the ones that have broad applications across multiple of the tokens only get better. Yes, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right that part of the value of the tokens isn't even what's written on them. It's just having this cheap artifact permanent in front of like you a, ends up being like academy manufacturer is an extended art out of modern crisis 2 which is already a set that costs double what what most packs cost right so this has been called on this cast already we're down to 43 listings and for foil extended art and the lowest price is 1350 no major walls the price of this card is going to end up being 50 dollars plus it could hit 100 before they ever reprint it in foil It'll show up for sure in non-foil regular in some commander deck somewhere, but this foil extended art version could be years before they give us another version. Which card did you Academy say? Academy Manufacturer. It's the 1-3 that says if you would create a clue, food, or treasure token, you create uh, one of uh, each instead. Three. No, you... Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier. Shame that doesn't mention blood, huh? Yeah, but the thing is that they're, they're just going to start saying like whenever you would create a clue like to a utility token like it'll just it, the next time they make a card like this it'll mention blood <laughs> so yeah they the the next time they announce uh the the token after blood token that they create they're going <laughs> to say okay by the way these are now all called utility tokens right. and then start printing cards that reference utility or tokens. they can just say artifact token right like non-creature artifact token on an on an artifact <laughs> Yeah, that's you're, they could. Yeah, it's a, t- a touch clunky, but yes, they could and mostly accomplish. You could, you could, you could make that as to. a four or five casting cost artifact that just doubles utility tokens as they come in, and it would be very popular. It'd be doubling, doubling season esque. Yeah. Yep. Um, what well, two, two more cards I want to touch on real quick? The first is Moniform Hellkite, the four mm-hmm. mana mythic dragon that whatever you cast a spell. A non-creature, you get a XX dragon. Um, but this seems like it could matter. It is an infinite chain somehow. Um, I don't know quite how, but this can make a lot of bodies in one turn that maybe they all die. Uh, but it does seem like there might be some utility there. 
I don't know exactly what it is, but I think that's an interesting function. This this is a very good dragon. This is a very good dragon in spells-based EDH decks because if you're chaining through a bunch of non-creature spells, you're getting a bunch of dragons, and that can be your finisher. As, for as long as this is yeah, in play, I'm... it's presenting a significant threat to the table. Yeah, you can have stuff like just Ashnod's Altar. Is that, is that the one I'm thinking of? I mean, I know this does some sort of sacrifice. Yeah, like, so Ashnod's Altar, first of all, is pretty funny with this because you can just, like, be casting Ponders and Preordains and cheap artifacts and then sacrificing the dragons that you create for more mana, which can get out of hand pretty quickly. You can also use um, Frexian Altar to make mana of one color. Oh, God, these are $80 now. <laughs> uh, so that's an option. Um, or just the one where you sack creatures to gain life. Like So you're just chaining spells, and you're just sacking all these cheap little dragons to gain life or mana. The other thing is, is very in good. Tiamat, the, the glut is in the higher casting costs, 5 to 9, right? Forecasting yeah. got good forecasting cast dragons are at a premium. So this makes it into Tiamat, pretty sure, even if only twenty five percent of the twenty or twenty five percent of the deck is non creature spells. Yeah, you probably don't need a terrible amount of them for, just for that to be useful. Um and the other one I wanted to mention was Savior of Allenbach. The three mana one two with training. That's a weird card. Yeah, so what training is if he attacks with another creature who's bigger, you put a 1-1 counter on the trainee, essentially, and then it triggers something. So he's a 3-mana 1-2, and if he attacks with someone with, I think, 2 or more power, you put a 1-1 counter on Savior. So he attacks as essentially a 2-3. And then when you put the counter on him, you exile a creature from uh, the battlefield or the graveyard, and then when Savior eventually dies, you put the exiled card back into the battlefield. So you could, you can either use this to eat your opponent's creatures as you attack. So like I swing with him and another creature, he trains, he becomes a 2-3, I exile your best creature and essentially it makes him an O-ring. Or I, again, I have some threat in my graveyard. I attack, I exile the card, the creature in my graveyard okay, well, now I have this 2-3 that's attacking you. You can block him and kill him, but I'm get, this creature that I just exiled from my graveyard is coming into play if he dies. So now he becomes a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, which is has some real potency there. And it looks like he's only $7 right now on presale, I think, which is interesting because his card's power level is very high. Well, here's the thing. There, there uh, is a strong white weenie deck in standard right now. I'm yeah. not sure how many yeah. copies of this they're going to run. This feels a little clunky to me. Like there are situations where he's not going to be able to attack profitably. Um, and the thing is, if he attacks and gets blocked or killed, they're getting their stuff back right away. So he's not reliable removal in that sense. And he's not durable like an oblivion ring. So I, I'm well, what's... I'm curious as to whether this card is in fact going to be a standard staple or not. Yeah, but what's that um, that one spirit, the exile stuff that's popular? Are you talking about in standard? It's like a three mana. Oh, you're talking about it's like from one Zendikar in... Rising? 
I think sky so. Sky apparition. The the thing about that is they don't get the creature back ever. They get a blue blue illusion token that's mm. XX equal to its casting cost. So you can get rid of troublesome abilities, utility functions, etc. Off the t- you can just wipe them off the table, never to return. And the worst case scenario is they get a generic creature back, which is significantly different. Yes, I, yeah, that that is a different application. I agree. And, and they're also in the same uh, also in the same casting cost slot. So getting rid of your skyclave apparitions for this that seems dubious to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that you're going to see this guy in modern. Um, I mean, in standard. Well, isn't Zendikar right? It's not going to be in standard with this, of is it? Zendikar is from last fall. Rotates every two is years. It? I cannot keep track of when these sets Co- come out. I actually have no Co- idea. COVID is, has stretched time. There's no doubt about that. The, the, between the set release, the, the frequency of the set releases and COVID and the fact that like I'm not actively part of standard anymore yeah. either just makes it impossible for yeah. me to but know. But yes, it is in standard together with this. Oh, okay. Well, you're you're right. I mean, this is, that is Skyclave is better at removing your opponent's creatures in that regard. Um, the other thing is like because of that, but the cre- but it doesn't have the other angle of getting to just be a reanimator. So one of the things that people were saying about it that might get it there is that Luminarch Aspirant, I believe it's called, at a Zendikar Rising, is the one that gives a plus one plus one counter to a creature of your choice at the start of combat, and so that gives you some flexibility in setting up. A beneficial attack making sure it's got something to train under mm-hmm. so there's that mm-hmm. that isn't yeah that is true because you can the luminarch can put a counter on itself and then attack with the savior and just that combo alone will always allow the savior to train the white decks also tend to run some three drop flyers that can help in this regard elite spellbinder and redain god of the worthy and then yeah it's mm-hmm. luminarch aspirant that gives the plus one plus one counters so it there, there's some potential here, but Skyclave Apparition you know, is the four, 14th most played card in the format right now, and they tend to run almost the full four copies. Okay, you you definitely have some utility. I, I'm almost inclined to say he's the white weenie angle might end up working, um, but I am interested. I almost think he'd be might be a more appealing with in the um, haunted house or haunted dollhouse build. Um, with which is you know the other reanimator card that creates like the token. So you have re- you definitely want to be filling up your graveyard, and you am I using the house to get them back, or maybe I, and I'm I can also be attacking to these creatures. But if you kill the savior, I'm getting him back anyways. And it seems like there's definitely some some options here for how to make that deck work. I like Dollhouse as an EDH card. I'm not convinced there's it's fast enough for the current standard, which is pretty aggressive. The um, I got one last card to cover: Patchwork Crawler. Uh, it's just a cute card for EDH. I don't know this is going to be how long it's going to take for this to be worth any money, but one in a blue for a one-two mm. zombie horror. So you can put it in your zombie deck uh, and then just do cute combo-y stuff. Two in a blue, exile target creature card from your graveyard and put a counter on it. And it has all activated abilities of all creature car- cards exiled with it. Uh, it can only be from your graveyard, uh, which seriously limits its shenanigans. If that had said any graveyard, this card would be much more interesting for EDH. However, you can still do really gross stuff like with this. You can put stuff in your yard in a reanimator style strategy that's not zombie based, but it's reanimator based, where the whole purpose is to get big stupid stuff in your yard and then do things with it. And you can turn this into all sorts of nonsense that ends the game on the spot by just combining two creatures. 
here, so uh, this card reads amusingly, but here's my problem with it. Necrotic Ooze exists and has ma never managed to be relevant. And is just basically a completely better version of this card. Yep. So the now the price on that is finally like 6 and 13 for non-foils and foils. But this card is from Scars of Mirrodin and hasn't gotten a reprint since. Uh, so and, and it's only and it's like, only in it took a while to and get it's there. only in four thousand EDH decks total over that 10, 15 year period. Yeah, so it's not that I I don't dislike the Patrick Crawler. It's just like man, I, it's really hard for me to think this is going to matter when I, essentially a better version exists. I, I don't think Crawler's a spec. I just think th there are infinite combos just, galore with this card. You just have to fool around with it. The thing is, it's not a it's not a commander, so you can't build your deck around it. You have to have a deck that this slots into that's already doing those shenanigans. And as a result, it's a, a little too narrow for spec potential. Yeah, it'll, I mean, you'd probably put it in a lot of the places you'd put Necrotic Ooze, at least. All right. And so, I mean... My, my la just my last comment here is I was thinking about this yesterday, and I'm inclined to say that Cleave might be the worst <laughs> mechanic in modern border magic. Like, I could look at all of these... Like, look, you could look at other mechanics that have been, like, quote-unquote mistakes... And you can talk about like Frexian mana, which is way too powerful, but at least it was, wasn't inherently too good. It was just, they printed, printed it on cards they shouldn't have. And you can look at stuff like storm or what have you. Um, and there's, there's lots of mechanics that don't do anything that interesting. And there's lots of mechanics that are just inoffensive twists on kicker. Like they're just fine. They exist, they get played and everyone forgets about them and that's fine. Uh, and there's some mechanics that are too powerful, but aren't necessarily awful. They're just, you know, they just didn't tune them correctly. But my God, Cleave is like the worst possible intersection of really clunky and difficult to parse and not interesting. Yep. That's doing so much work to just be kicker. And I don't care that you're trying to be like, you're just a revision of kicker. Cause that happens a lot, but like, it's a really obnoxious way to get there. Here's the thing. They need to get off the wavelength that having new mechanics all the time, even matters to players. Yeah. No, nope. yeah. honestly, uh, yeah. no one gives a shit. You don't judge a, You don't judge a set by how many new mechanics it has. If they have a brilliant new mechanic that adds a dimension to the game, you know, Planeswalker, or the first time they did Kicker, <laughs> then, then you can just make that evergreen and run with it and use it when it's appropriate and you're good. And then if you, if you have a, you know, a, a breakthrough that is a solid variation on the theme, like I would argue, Disturb. Disturb has turned out really, really well. It's a great limited mechanic because it's flashback where they can do, you, you get a totally different thing. And so they've got, they've, it has, it allowed them to do a bunch of interesting uh, kicker style things where you get to step away from the, the primary problem of kicker, which is that you're just doing more of the same thing on that card. Whereas with Disturb, you can have the front side be a flying creature. And on the back side, it's a pacifism. Like, you, you get to do... And adding that utility creates more in-game choice, like game state choices inside a limited game. That all worked out well. 
And that's what makes Cleave especially egregious, is it's in the same set with Disturb. You don't even need another flashback or kicker-style mechanic here. You've already given us one. We don't need one where it's you get this minor effect, and if you pay more, then you get a major effect. If you wanted to do that, you could have just given us kicker, and none of these cards would be any different. Like, kicker's an established mechanic. You can just make it evergreen and put it in this set and no one would have been like oh that really fucking sucks they used kicker again and that makes this set worse no it cleave makes it worse because we've all got to learn how to read the cards completely differently uh i can i can no matter how many times i try i can't read these cleave cards correctly it just my brain refuses to do it right i'm sure it looked cute the first time they set it up on whatever demo card they did it with but it's you're right it's Awkward. Awkward is the word. And there's there's I, no way they will go back to it. I guarantee you, in a year from now, when Marrow does his like state of the union for the year, he'll admit that Cleave is a mistake. Yeah. I, I It's even knowing... Like, the first time I read it, I... It just... It was not... It was not intuitive at all. And then when I understood it, and then went to read another card, I think it was a, the Dawn Glare, some Ray of Light card or whatever, which goes from a two mana mana cost to an X mana cost in the cleave. And I was like, oh my God, I am trying so hard to read this stupid ass card. Lantern Flare. That card is atrocious because you go from a two, like a one in white casting cost. And then the cleave cost is white red X. And it, it changes what the X means based on the cleave. It's what, oh. what percentage of pre-release Crimson Vow judge calls are going to be correcting a noob player that's casting a cleave spell, and why is it a hundred percent? Yeah, 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 precisely. And like I, so there's, a, I, I don't want them to do kicker every single time, and this is it is difficult because like seventy percent of mechanics they create for spells boil down to be kicker which is tough right i understand that that's a challenge as a as designers to get away from that but i i also completely agree that and i'm i'm surprised that they haven't yet you know what is the turn they haven't sacrificed the sacred cow or whatever of having new brand new mechanics every single set like why are you holding yourself to this you've broken so many other rules why not this one Right, well, like, and I just I don't get who's clamoring for this anymore. You're absolutely right. They should stop doing that. And and here, try to come up with new mechanics. And where you do, great, but don't make things like cleave if you don't have to. And here's the other angle: they're going back to the same planes too often, and that's boxing them in, in terms of what they think that plane has to represent mechanically. Because you can't, if you're some brilliant new designer at Wizards, and they've hired plenty of new bodies the last few years, uh, including Ellie's over there doing work right now. Uh, congrats Ellie on her first week at Wizards. The, um, you know, those people come in and they've got this idea they've had in their back pocket since they got hired, right? And they're like, oh, I want to do this. But they're like, yeah, but we're in Innistrad, so we're not doing that because everything has to be graveyard, like revolve around graveyards. You should go back to Ravnica, Zendikar, Innistrad, but you don't need to do it every three to five years. You could do it every five to eight years and be totally fine. And like honestly, you can extend it further. You'll you'll get your your team being forced to think outside the box on a new plane will get you will produce probably more interesting new mechanics than returning to Zendikar and trying to figure out how to make lands matter in a completely different way when you've already had eighty hours of discussion 
on this topic and you've probably mined most of what there is to be mined. Once we left Dominaria back after the Weatherlight saga, I don't think we returned to a plane until Return the Ravnica, right? Like, it was a new plane every single time, I'm pretty sure, for a good long while. And then they did return the Ravnica, and now it's no, like, no. oh, every well, third set Well, no, because you're forgetting returned. that like most years used to be all on the same plane, because we used to have three sets in a row that were all situated in the same place. Well, right, but you would do... You're, you, yes, you're you're right. So you would do... Uh, oh, no, it was Mirrodin. Scars and Mirrodin was the first return. I think. Because that came before Return of the Ravnica. Because they did Mirrodin, and that was after 8th edition. And then every year was a new plane that we hadn't been to before. And then Scars Mirrodin was the first time we hit a year where we were seeing a plane we had already seen. But you're, you're right. They do it way too frequently. Now it's like every third set and it is and i'm sure that's part of it too like you said that they don't do three three sets per plane anymore so they burn through them a lot faster but i agree they do that too much as well um i don't know i I feel like cleave like it doesn't even make sense here like put this in like wait until you're on a plane that's like library themed or like has some newsy are, are like like literature sub theme somewhere like I don't know Strixhaven and call it like edit or, or, or revise. No, I would call it advance. <laughs> advance is way better than cleave. This is about you're taking a spell and you're evolving it. Like you're you're taking it to the next level. Cleave has nothing to do with this. Like, yeah, it's it's, it's like it's cleave, cleave is the word they came up with that was the most like benign in the context but fit in terms of being violent and horror typed but it's not a good fit for what the mechanic actually means which is that you get to do more with this spell like how does cleave refer to that yeah also wouldn't cleave make way more sense as an ability on a creature that's attacking sure like could wouldn't you see cleave as like oh a creature might have like cleave three and cleave is when you attack with this creature you can pay the cleave cost and if the creature is blocked you can assign its combat damage to another creature that the player controls right like you can pay extra mana to hit two creatures or, when you or attack rushing river or something like you're dividing them. the battlefield yeah like it's, it's just bad every which yeah, way i mean i don't think it's really we don't need to belabor the point because i think everybody's on the same page on this not one person would yeah. defend this whole thing no i have my soapbox i'm gonna use yeah, it fair enough all right so bottom uh, line this looks you... very much like crimson vow looks a lot like midnight hunt this is just one big set split in two yeah and and i don't see yeah. much in the way of modern staples here especially in the wake of mh2 it's so hard for one of these standard cards to break through <laughs> to the modern level. Uh, I don't see anything here that looks like it's going to be a consistent player in that format. I see plenty of good mid-rangey uh, EDH cards so far. And next week we should have most of the rest of this. And we'll see if anything... I I, still, I haven't seen a great henge yet. I'll put it that way. I, I don't see a banner, no. a banner mythic at the 8, 9, 10 level for EDH that looks like a must play that will be widely played in a ton of decks yeah the the closest thing the closest Um, thing i see is cemetery prowler and as we've established it's at best a mid-tier staple yeah uh did you see dune yes did you like it 
Yeah. Did you read it? Yeah. But it's been a while. Okay. So me too. It has also been a while for me too, but I really liked it. And I thought the movie was phenomenal, but I spent the whole time wondering how anyone who hadn't read the book could like it. See, it's like, I'm getting a kick out of this, but I can't imagine liking this if you hadn't read it. See, I've seen plenty of comments like that. And I have to wonder how much that you lay at the feet of the type of media that the people that say that consume. If you are the kind of person who is fucking around on your phone or playing video games while you're watching things all the time, then I just think that classical movie making is getting harder and harder for you to connect with because you have trained your brain to not be able to fucking focus for five minutes. But I don't think Dune is impenetrable. I think they actually took, I think that Villeneuve demanding that he be able to spread it out over two films allowed him to take his time and set up the narrative better than the uh, David Lynch version from the eighties. And Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not comparing it to the David Lynch version. Provide better explanation as to what's going on. Like, I think the story, like Ellie doesn't know the story and she followed along just fine. Like there's a space empire. There's a planet that has a resource. Everybody needs. There was one house in control of it. The emperor was scared of another house. So he gave them control of the planet and then they they set a trap for them. And then there's these witches who think that there's a messiah coming. And it turns out to be the Duke's son. And then there's a big battle and the kid escapes. Like I, don't think, like, I don't think that's a complicated topic. However, I do think it's funny that if you understand the full timeline of Dune, then... <laughs> Then what happens in the first this first these first two movies, which basically constitute the the first book or so, um, is such a tiny piece of the iceberg of the absolute yeah. psychotic like the psychedelic madness that ensues later. That I just think it's funny because like it's one of these properties where if they if they never end if he doesn't cough up the second movie or even if he does if he doesn't go further than that then anyone watching still has no idea doesn't really have a context. They don't understand why does it even matter that the, that this Messiah is going to exist? Why does the universe need this person? What, what is the long-term goal here? Yeah. They didn't touch on that at all in this movie, which I mean, it's, it's fine, I guess. Um, but yeah, like you completely misunderstand why he's important. I also don't think there's any chance in hell they'll do the following books. Like, and they just go off the rails so quickly. Well, and I lo- I really enjoy them. I think I read six of them. They were great, but man, do they get out there. See, I think uh, that th- this series makes way more sense as an HBO series than it does as, as movies. Because to keep the momentum on getting approval on the movies is going to be tough. Because they are, this is just, it's more intellectual. And if people go see sci-fi, they expect it to be action. Like everybody thinks everything is going to be Fast and the Furious 7. So yeah, they get upset when people haven't shot each other in five minutes. Well, but that's but that's that's what I meant by by being surprised that this is popular with people who haven't read the book because the plot, if you haven't read the books, is yeah, okay, you get it, warring houses, blah blah blah. But the plot is so basic if you're lacking the context, and the movie is two and a half hours long. So it's like, there's not lots of witty dialogue. It's, it's, um, it's very plotting. If you are only getting the surface level story, it's cool. If you watch every scene, knowing all the stuff behind it, and then it doesn't feel as slow because you're really taking in the details. But like, if you're missing all of that, 
it just I would I, I I'm just surprised at all. I, I it's a pleasantly surprised. It just seems like it would be so slow it's, for people because and then you look at like all the Marvel movies where it's just like like every second it's like either someone's punching something or someone's got a Joss Whedon I, line, I just, and that's every second of the within movie. forty eight hours of watching Dune. I watched Black Widow, and Ugh. I mean you couldn't have a more stark contrast right like black widow is the is the prototypical marvel movie where none of the internal logic for or motivations for any of the characters hangs together with any examination whatsoever whereas dune is completely the opposite i find that every character in dune is well realized well acted and their motivation and objectives and how they interplay with the other characters is is very cohesive the Oh, well, yeah, because the guy knew how to write a book. But it's, I I see it, I think Villeneuve handled this property very similarly to how he handled Blade Runner. He made, it was, they were love letters to the source material. They, with his own personal touch and expansions on the themes, and they're beautifully made, they're beautifully shot. There's lots of lingering panning shots and subtle yeah. detail to pick up on <laughs> that if you're a fan you'll enjoy and a lot of people will just miss because they were staring at instagram when it was on screen and that's fine like it's it's an amazing movie for me it's an okay movie for the average and that's fine <laughs> like i yeah yeah i the most you can hope for as a super fan of anything is that person who's zero percent invested and could give a fuck will say oh that was okay or that was good Right, right, right. I, I, I thought he did a great job with it, and I, I don't think anyone could have read Dune and then gone and expected a truly like detailed recreation of the source material because you're when you read the book, you're like, ah, yeah, half the dialogue in this book is actually people's inner monologues. Clearly, they're going to have to do something different when they put this on the screen. Uh, so yeah, he did, he did a great job with it. I just. It just, you know, those slow panning shots. And I'm like, I get to drink this in. But I, what if you don't know why this is cool? I, I'd also say that the... A, knowing the Lynch movie and its failings, it really helps. Because there's, it, there's a very interesting critique going back and forth between these two auteur versions of the property and the pros and cons of each. Um, there there are you need to get into conversations about which actor did a better job of representing which character um i also say that the sound design in this movie is probably oscar winning um it's probably mm. it, it, it's, it's at it. least in contention like we listened to it on Dol- in dolby atmos and it was fucking epic like sandworm yeah. when the sandworms yeah. coming towards you your whole your living room is like so i i went for the very first time to uh to a movie theater in since 2019 uh my wife and i went at two o'clock on a sunday afternoon there were like 20 people in the audience uh and i got it on imax and and i had wasn't planned on it and somebody else was like you need to go see this on imax and i knew it was him the the director and i'm like "Mm, yeah he does do these visual feasts so yeah they had like the sardaukar scene uh, on salsa segunda yeah where they're doing the throat singing was like whoa <laughs> that was strong did you notice by the way the uh the blood sacrifices that they had in the background of that yeah, yeah. shot yeah um 
It was, yeah, it was, it was really cool. And I messaged my dad and I'm like, if you're going to see this, you got to go waltz in theaters. Uh, just go on an off time when there's someone in the theater, because I don't think you're going to get the full impression. I like, I have a friend who watched it like at home, like just on his computer monitor. And he's like, I didn't think it was that good. I'm like, I can tell you why you didn't think it was that good. Uh, but yeah, I, and, and you know, here, so if you, if you, if you really care about Dune spoilers for the future series, you should turn the podcast off now. I can't imagine them ever doing anything beyond really the first book and especially not beyond the second or third, because I don't, did you read, how far did you read? Did you like read past the first three? No, but I've, I've watched a YouTube synopsis of the entire thing. Yeah. Because after the third book, every single character is dead except for one because it jumps like 20,000 years into the future. And then there's like three more books by, by Frank Herbert, not even his son. Cause that's when it's just his son. So uh, like, okay. So you, you casted every good actor in Hollywood and they get a movie and a half and then they're all gone because they're all dead. <laughs> We're 20,000 years in the future. I mean, they already did uh, children of Dune as a series like 15 years ago or something. Yeah. In the UK. Right. I heard about yeah. that. So I, I can see them doing children of Dune as an Amazon series or something. The thing about, having six or seven major competing platforms is they are extremely hungry for content all the time and anything that looks like they could turn it into a two or three year thing that would have solid ratings is very compelling for them so we're we're already seeing like wheel of time is coming out on amazon soon we we've had the shinera books got a treatment not so long ago the, the new game of thrones is on the docket for next year you know, there's another Witcher coming out shortly and like none of this stuff is going to be untouched. So I think if Villeneuve gets his second movie, then a series will be in the works for a follow up. Yeah, that I, I, I could see like maybe as a TV series, you know, one of those prestige series. But like as movies, they don't make any sense to me um, because the book, the first book was such good as so good as a standalone. But they just get wackier and wackier. But like in a way that I love reading them, but in an in a way that gets harder and harder to film. I mean, I guess foundation has this problem because that's always been called an unfilmable science fiction book because it's like the original foundation, the first book or two are split up into like a bunch of sections and every section jumps forward like 5,000 years. (laughs) So you're never with this because it's like a story that takes place over like 50,000 years or whatever. So like you're never with the same characters and which obviously makes that difficult for audiences that aren't, invested yeah because you have to you have to insert Um, a time jumping shirtless guy to to justify the studio filming it at the budget you want yeah yeah like imagine like okay we got this uh great actor who signed on for it uh but they can only be in two episodes and then we have to recast all of the other parts every time like (laughs) yeah okay but i mean that i haven't watched that yet because that's on apple apple tv right foundation I don't know. Something like yeah. that. So, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, uh, yeah, Dune, good. And uh, Crimson Vow looks solid, pretty similar to the last set. Yeah, there's magic cards too. Uh, I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B U M P I N. How about you? You can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic as well as via occasional articles on MGGPrice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com ProTrader service. For just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. 
Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com. Save 5% off your order and support this podcast. That is the end of episode 296. We draw closer to having to come up with an idea for episode 300. I'm sure we will come up with it. We're going to have some giveaways. Uh, There's going to be some stuff. (laughs) We're going to be nebulous about it. That's in a month. That's like first week of December. Yeah, we'll we'll do something cool. Something. Yeah, something like that. Uh, One, two, three. Yeah, uh, December, November 30th, actually. Alrighty. Seven, eight, nine. Yep. All right. Well, I'll see you next week. More Crimson Vows. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week. Another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.